0: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a mild February morning, Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning. We've got a regular show, in a sense, we have two guests, however, our guests are a little bit different in that one is in studio, always love having in-studio guests an hour from now, and we're going to cover a different topic at the bottom of this hour, maybe that's just the way it is on this side of the Super Bowl, on this side of football season, got to do something different. We'll break that news with you in just a little bit. You guys can jump in here and join us anytime the next two hours. one 844 Wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can hit us up on email. Businessradio at CSXM.com. Or catch us on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle up there, at WMoneyball. We're going to be around for the next two hours. In this segment in this first quarter Open Lines, we are all just back from Miami and a little Super Bowl action, and some of us lingered there longer than others. Very curious, gentlemen, in the cold, long, dark other side of football season, what What could possibly catch your eye in the world of sports?
2: Well, I mean, you said cold, long, dark hockey is, uh, I, 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 as, as promised, I'm going to... Uh... Refocus my energies on hockey this year. All right, I think that's going to get me through this uh, the next couple of months. of Before us, uh, before we get into baseball and all those fun things, give so. us
1: give us one nugget. As you turn your eyes to hockey, what stands out to you? Well, you're... right
2: now it's kind of interesting. Um, if if you're kind of into because we talk about this a lot in NBA over the last few years about this kind of imbalance between the conferences, and the impact on playoffs. Right now, if you were to look at kind of the hockey standings, hockey power rankings, the top four teams. In hockey, are probably Tampa Bay, Washington, Boston, and New uh, Pittsburgh on the East.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: The St. Louis Blues, the defending champions, are probably the best team still in the West, but mm-hmm. they are, I think, noticeably worse than those four teams. Mm-hmm. So You've mm-hmm. got essentially a f- you know a, a real imbalance in that the got East it. is going to be beaten up on themselves, and the West should be a much easier path to Stanley Cups.
3: And and the collectively, how much probability do they have to win the Stanley Cup? Poor all five. of those Poor guys five.
2: together <laughs> all <laughs> those individually to right Although, all those five together uh, the, the, i would still t- you know, i would still take Just the, take field, the field, field over those yeah. five um, well, it's, 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 i think mean, that that is the eternal question with hockey is is any of it going to actually matter come playoff time? Yeah. Right, so that is certainly a key distinction. Do we know know if
1: basketball has, if hockey has become more or less deterministic over time? And we kind of make fun of it for being even more (laughs) coin-flippy than baseball in the playoffs, and we see these huge upsets. Is there any chance that it's less deterministic than it used to be. Is there any chance that rule changes or style of play or something? It's possible.
2: I I actually don't know. That would be an interesting question to see uh, the extent to which that kind of like, you know, the probability that one of the top teams wins in the playoffs, like whether that's changed over time. And certainly last year we had a very classic example of Tampa Bay having a historically good regular season record, then flaming out in the first round.
1: And and Tampa Bay, by the way, it should be kind of the analytics darling. Lots of teams are adding analytics now, but Tampa Bay was pretty early on. And they're
2: looking really good again this year, so it's kind of like the redemption tour for them, hopefully.
4: No, no, I was just going to build on Shane's point, which is, you know, a lot of listeners out there might be saying mathematically, how could the top four teams have less than 50%? Well, just so everyone's clear— if you believe it's mainly a coin flip, there's two conferences. So first of all, all the probability in one conference can be no more than 50%. And then you're only taking four of the eight teams that make the playoffs in that conference. So just simple math would say it has to be significantly less. Matter of fact, our debate should be how much above 25% is it and how much measurably above. But it's certainly between 25 and 50 and probably a lot closer to 25.
1: And then compare that 25, which is the base rate, if it's all random, compare that 25 to the to the to the cumulative probability you'd assign to the top 4 teams in any other sport. Yeah. Exactly. Halfway, halfway and not only end.
4: that, we're making an assumption. I mean, I think it's fair to say that those 4 teams are making the playoffs, but there's even a de minimis chance, you have to take away a little probability that one of them doesn't even make the playoffs True. even though sure they're enough, at this stage now. De, de minimis. Tiny.
1: Oh. A Little small amount. Capselon. You're, us- you're usually the one who brings the new words. I, uh, I-, I-, I, I could see. bring many new words. <laughs> I- yeah. know. I- okay, guys. One of the things that caught my eye has to be obviously this trade yesterday. Baseball. Your Beach. world. Well, pitchers and catchers report. What is it in about next week? Next week. Oh, so so goodness. we are
3: definitely uh, thinking about baseball. Yeah. Ba- uh, the Red Sox. They unloaded probably or arguably the second best play- player in baseball. I don't think it's there's there's an argument. Really? Uh, so tr- well, you tr- can tr- argue the pitcher. I mean, come on. No, uh, no I'm position saying, uh, player. Position player. Oh, okay, so um,
1: Trout is consensus one. Trout is
3: consensus one. And Betts is probably, I mean, over the last three years, he's undoubtedly been really? the second best, if not yeah. even the first best player in baseball.
4: Look, I heard time. a lot of analysts say today, we can debate mm-hmm. about this, that he's the greatest Red Sox, homegrown Red Sox, since Ted Williams. Whoa, my goodness! No, no, they're saying he's better than David Ortiz was. They're saying, well, not home. He, well, he wasn't not home. Grown, 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 but I'm saying, they're saying, I know. They're saying he's the best Red Sox player since Ted Williams.
1: How many well, seasons has he played in the majors? For he's twenty-seven the
4: Red Sox? years old. He came up. Uh,
3: he's probably been about five, six yeah. years. Totally. okay. Yeah.
1: So what? What jumps out to me when I see this is usually the these big money, especially the smart big money teams are hoovering up players from around the league. Mm-hmm. You, you see moves from, like, Minnesota to whoever, or, you know, or from Cleveland to whoever. You don't usually see from one big, smart team to another big, smart well, team. Actually, so te- explain that
2: to well, me. Well, I mean, I'm from the Red Sox size, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed because I did not want this. I, I wanted Mookie Betts to stay in the Red Sox. But the logic would be, I mean, he is going to be hitting free agency at the end of this season he's already been pretty vocal about not taking a hometown discount okay so in that scenario your home, you, you know, the host team kind of is in the same oh, position it's, as in the other team. Well, so why not get something out of him? Usually, that's called a rental for, the, for, for that yeah. one year well, this, while he still kind of has value to you under I believe, team control. I believe the Red Sox are they paying can just qu- resign him I anyway.
3: Be, I believe the Red Sox are paying quite a bit of money, and they also unloaded David Price mm-hmm. um, right. and are paying a lot of money for that as well. Yeah. So are I don't know how that works in terms of salary caps. If you, but you're if saying you're pay, paying, paying a lot of money, they're they're covering a lot the of the contract.
4: Mm. The contract value. Well, I can tell you, the I heard a great analysis coming in this covering morning. more
2: the David Price contract value right. than is the Mookie Betts.
4: Yeah, yes. I heard a, a great analysis coming in. So it actually relates, not only relates to your hockey theory, which is, if you're the Red Sox right now, let's pretend that you think you're the best team in your division. Now, by the way, there's no data to suggest that. The Yankees <laughs> have gotten better. The yeah. Rays had a very good season. Forget just theirs. There's a lot let's of not data to suggest the they they're not, not the best team in so the division. And by the way, just so you guys remember, there's a penalty coming down to them from Major League Baseball. We don't know what that is, and they don't actually have a
1: manager right now. P- p- so, oh, you mean the cheating scandal? The, the cheating s- the scandal, a possible and, penalty. No,
4: no, I said a possible penalty, but also, and they don't have a manager right now. So you can make mm-hmm. an easy argument: they're not going to win this year, or they're not. You know, maybe they're a coin flip, but not a great coin flip this year. Yeah, they got a great starting right fielder. They got a great closer, and as you pointed out, Shane Mookie Betts can re-sign with them in a year. They dumped a lot of salary, mostly David Price's contract, yeah. which they were able to dump. That was the argument that I heard, was that, and if you think about it, why would the Dodgers do this? Well, they want to win. They want to win. Yeah, and right you could argue they're one player, two players no, away and, and from doing it. Given the position
2: they're in right now, certainly, I just, you know, I mean, if I could really redo this whole operation, I would have re-signed Mookie Betts a couple years ago when they had a little bit more leverage over that situation. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean given given that it's gone this late, I I I agree they kind of like are probably how do you de- how taking do you decide... advantage of the current situation, Good. but
1: So how do you decide as an organization whether to go and keep I mean this guy, if you don't keep this guy if you don't make the move yeah. a couple years ahead of time to keep this guy, who do you make that move to keep?
2: And they already did that. Xander Bogarts, for example, was signed co- like last year to a to an extension. I know, but let's remember, uh, pe- and, and he was, but but he was. A, I, I think at least the rumors are he was a lot more willing to do that than Mookie Betts was. Well, also people are talking.
4: I mean, this is a, this is. I don't want to call it. I remember you remember when there was a period in Major League Baseball. The owners didn't explicitly collude, but they basically said, we're not going to sign players to these massive contracts. Two years ago. Yeah. (laughs) People are talking about Mookie Betts being a $400 million contract. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, well, why not? He's 27. Partly because
1: he's younger. No, no.
4: no. I'm saying you could see someone, him demanding a 10-year, $40 million-year contract. And, by the way, if he were going to be productive all of those years, which we know he probably wouldn't be,
2: Forty million may actually be a discount. Five years, certainly that contract that that contract would probably age better than say the Bryce Harper contract would.
3: You know, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, first of all, Bryce Hop- Harper's contract was well under 400 million. It was extended
2: over a massive number of years—13 so, years, 13 years, years? He's
4: getting 25 million a year. So
2: it's but in contrast, Mookie Betts actually does provide above average replacement. No, no, <laughs> oh, no, no, oh, no that's, that's not fair. fair. So, no, that's uh, not fair.
3: Bryce Harper does too, but B- Buki, Mookie Betts <laughs> is, is is more speed oriented, and I think speed deteriorates much worse than power does. So there's my you say hot think. take.
1: Yeah, you say thing. You well, really say thing. We've seen think.
3: it. We've seen it at certain positions. So he's not actually a center fielder. Well, he hasn't been playing center field. He probably could, um, but he's uh, he's not a shortstop um, and he's not a center fielder. And those those positions do deteriorate. Okay. And you don't. But play right field. He's, he's playing why do right. You care so as that's a Bryce. Well, because he he provides. A well over average defense in right field, and it, it adds a lot of okay. war value. People, mm-hmm. and well, I'd like to see the age curve on that. That's and, a, right, it's a good and question. And usually, the age curve. True, on right I mean, field,
2: most of his contributions are not in fielding the fielding domain, right? BM. But but
3: it, it gives a big chunk there. So, and particularly his his uh, overtake the last six years. But right field is usually where you you stick Bryce Harper, who is a middling at best field or good arm, right? That kind of guy, the Reggie Jackson types of the of the world, strong not arm, a strong average, arm, average, average fielder. coverage. Got but it. when you do get a a fast guy like Mookie Betts out there, you tend to really get a lot of value out of it. So, and by the question- way, tell me,
1: do you do you position your outfielders differently when you have one guy? Is it like defensive backs in in football where you really can? Change your scheme around a guy who can take a player. I, w- I would mm-hmm. guess they do. I mean, yeah. I have to
3: say this is now you're you're talking the front line of analytics and the and the growing staff of people that we know uh, in, in Major League Baseball will say that this is a big focus of their attention: where to actually place the outfielders. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the really? problem what I hear is how do you communicate that to the outfielder. Because it is a su- somewhat small. I mean, you're talking about five feet, ten feet kind of variation. No. And they don't know exactly where to stand. It's a big yard out there. No, but you could imagine. So they're, they're actually asking, they're ha- helping them show, they, they tell the audience, like so to line up on certain lines of yeah. sight. Yeah, um, right. And they're not allowed to put stuff on the. But
1: field. you need two lines of sight
3: because well, got, the
2: Red Sox have these Google watches that they can just communicate through. Right, <laughs> and the Astros have these buzzers. Right. <laughs> Why don't
4: what they just do it like you know, like the Tonight Show? They have a little X out there, and they just move that X yeah, around. right. Where right. They went. Look, you know, it can have a big impact. Your center fielder now, if your center fielder does not have to cover, let's say, the right, right. field yeah. gap,
0: right. and now all that's of huge. a
4: sudden the center fielder can whether it's go backwards and cut off, you know, plays that would be doubles or now singles. You know, it can have a big
1: impact it can, on defense. can, the emphasis being can, and you have to have a team that is willing to is willing make to those changes. In it. and, exactly. and, and
3: it's still only a small group that does it, but two factors, you know, when Shane and I worked on fielding some years back, um, we didn't have the starting location of the outfielder or the infielder, and so we'd have to judge their fielding prowess by the likelihood of a ball being caught from its landing spot. And, and that's Regardless of it. where they started? Regar- we didn't know, we right? didn't know, uh, you know. And so now, now <laughs> actually the data is done exactly opposite that, you assume, you, you just look at their starting point and you look at the time that they had to to get to the landing spot and you make, make a judgment first on that. And so you, you don't give any outfielder any credit for being lined up in the right spot. So we've right. almost come the exact
4: opposite from where we were. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make sense out of this. You know what's also interesting, um, now that we have the data, I'd be interested to see if there are baseball players who are fast, let's call it to first base or running the base pass, but aren't fast in terms of running to a ball. You know, now I'm starting to wonder, like, is there is speed a one-dimensional thing? Like, I know it is. Like, you can run fast, you can run fast, but it doesn't mean you have the same intuition. It doesn't mean when trying to chase down a ball, you can run the same speed as when you know you've got to get to that base, you know, exactly where you're going. I'm just wondering, no, I, is there I, one I, dimension of I, speed? I, I, no,
2: I think there is a different speed if you're tracking a ball to try to make a catch in the outfield. Not only that, but it's you. you we now have the ability to judge whether or not the— the path they took was optimal right. in some kind of, tra- and, yeah. in some sense. And the
1: jump, how quickly yeah. Yeah, decomposed. Really they to. decomposed yeah. Yeah. this thing into all three of those right. bits.
3: Unfortunately, we don't get the raw data, so all we get is the MLB sort of summary statistics at this point, we, and and we, they produce what they call we, jump and route, yes. We
1: need a sound effect, Dion, for when Adi goes into his weekly, <laughs> wah, 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 why can't we get the, the data, wah, Let wah, me do that,
4: everyone. <laughs> also, for us baseball historians, it is the first time since 1963... Now, with the Dodgers, uh, where the two reigning MVPs will be playing in the same outfield. The last time was the Yankees in '63, it was Mantle and Maris. Right. And so they have Bellinger and Betts. So uh-huh. they'll be playing together in the same. It's the first time in 57 years yeah. where the two, last
3: you two have MVPs. to admit the Dodgers are
4: scared. They're <laughs> scary <in> and <laughs>
3: sad. Yeah. So,
1: remind me who else the Angels got. They, they, had they got already. Jock
3: Peterson because they, they pulled him um, from somewhere else. I mean, So so Jock Peterson ended up in the Angels.
1: I thought they picked up somebody else as well. It was a but, three-way
3: trade, I think. a uh, Atani? Um, well, they have certainly have they a about it for years. Okay. So yeah. the Angels outfield is looking quite good. I mean, the Angels are are expected to do well this
2: year. Uh, who knows? Whatever, <laughs> whatever. I know. I mean, the Angels have been—we've been expecting that team to be good for okay, the whole my career. Now we
1: have this Lakers-Clippers thing, and a, and a growing yeah. Dodgers-Angels thing. This potential Dodgers-Angels potential. Well,
4: let me just say, by the way, that wasn't the only trade that happened last night. You mentioned you switched to basketball a little bit. There was an. I don't get the you trade can't, you that can't, happened. You can't keep your head around. I it. can't get my head around this trade that happened in the NBA. So a guy who I think is invaluable, Clint Capella, for the Rockets. All the guy does is play defense, block shots, rebound, do everything, and doesn't request the basketball. Which you better if you were playing with Harden and Westbrook. And they traded him in a massive trade.
1: I mean, they got, up, let's be clear: four teams, twelve players.
4: Right, and they got Jeez. back. They got back. Robert Covington. Sixer. Former Sixer. I mean, Covington's fine. He's a good defensive player, good three-point shooter. But, but not, as, not, good as, not as good as who they
2: traded away. Not as
4: good as who they – and not, to me, for what they need. But the only explanation I can give though, – they're saying that Rockets are going to make another trade, and this frees right. up salary cap space. The only other thing I can think of is – I don't know if you guys saw. This is the first time maybe in 60 or 70 years. The Rockets played an entire game, I think, without someone taller than six foot six yep. on the court. They won it. Yeah, and they won that game.
1: And they've played another one since.
4: No, I know. And they won that one too. So the question becomes are they basically going to go for a lineup? Like maybe they think Clinton Capella, Clinton Capella is, you know, having a center in the NBA, three is more than two. Why are we playing somebody out there for 40 minutes that can't shoot threes? Let, we know Covington can shoot threes and is happy to shoot them every time he gets the ball. Let's and, bring and in a bunch of six, seven guys.
1: Remember that their fundamental challenge is they've got Harden and Westbrook. How do you keep those guys? How do you how do you ma- optimally deploy those two guys at the same time? One argument is I need more space and the big men clout, crowd up the space in the, in the middle so Let's just open it up. Let's go the other way and see what we can do. Let's just see what we can do with Harden and Westbrook if we remove that constraint.
4: But again, their starting lineup is going to be you know something like Eric Gordon, PJ Tucker, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Robert Covington. Yeah, they got a bunch of guys that can all shoot. They got a bunch of guys that are essentially six five to six seven, and that'll be the whole team. Okay,
1: so they, they come down to the Sixers in the finals or the Bucks in in the finals without and a big man. Who do they pair up against Embiid?
4: Well, let's, let's pretend that Embiid stays on the Sixers, which is not 100% guaranteed. Oh, well, the Sixers have not been playing well, and there's a lot Why? of talk. I think part of it is because just the, the mix of players. They don't have someone to finish games, which I told you was going to happen at the beginning of the season. Defensively, they've been playing terribly as of late. There's a lot of discussion of Embiid for Paul George. That's the latest rumors that I have. That the Clippers, would, the Clippers, would, would George
1: won. accept that? Could, could does he? Be, can he, he veto, can veto that? Veto, yeah, sure. Okay. Number
4: of years. I, mean, he, I don't make. see
1: him working so hard to get out there and then say, "Ah, oh, let me go to the East Coast." Yeah,
4: yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, I think what they would do is what they had before, which is if you know. They would have whether it's uh, P.J. Tucker or Eric Gordon. I, I'm not saying these guys are seven feet tall. No, but, but these guys weigh as much as Embiid. I mean, these Tucker guys, doesn't weigh as much. I'm as saying Embiid. these guys are like 250. These Tucker's guys, a
1: dog, though. I love P.J. Tucker.
4: I know, I do too. I'm isn't he a Texas guy?
1: Oh, you know, now that you mention it, sure. Yes, sure I, was it. Oh, nice. I, nice. I was wondering why I loved him. was wondering. We all have that one in in there. now, don't we?
4: Yeah, all I'm commenting <laughs> way, on is that trade was an interesting okay,
1: trade so, too. I agreed entirely, but it has to be noted it's beyond just those two games, Capella's been out with plantar fasciitis for a little while. They've been ten and one in his absence, ten and one. I mean it's getting up to a sample size that's actually really But reliable. again,
4: it's back to what it's it's not unrelated to what Shane was talking about with hockey, what we were talking about with baseball. I don't even care, really, what Houston does during the regular season. They're going to be in the playoffs. At moment, appears they're not going to be the one or the two seed in the West. They're not going to be better than the Lakers or the Clippers. So they're going to be a three or four seed. Right now, I think they're five or six. They're going to be somewhere up there in the West. I have no faith that that team is going to go into L.A., let's just say yeah. L.A., and win twice. Okay,
1: but given that... You've, you're, you're talking me into the trade, and the yeah, strategy. like giving that Lester, variance. Yeah. 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 Well, exactly. you know, I agree. Exactly. No, look,
4: my, look, and they have the coach yeah. that's willing to try anything. Mike D'Antoni, you know, he was the master of small ball in the threes. Give it, yeah, give it a shot. If you can't win with your lineup. Give it a shot with all f- six, seven guys.
1: By the way, Matt E.D. tells me, uh, P.J. Tucker, 245 pounds, Joel so- Embiid, I'm two, 249. He's- I'm sorry. I was way off. <laughs> Yo, I'm sorry, sorry Joel about Joel Embiid is only 249? Correct. He's only four pounds heavier than Tucker. Tucker's heavier than I thought he was, but Embiid's only 249. Yeah. That doesn't make That doesn't make sense. At
3: seven foot one. That's how he's listed. Just, yeah. That's how he's listed. That is complete nonsense.
1: <laughs> that guy's at least 280. Uh, that's interesting. That, okay, let's get let's get down to uh, let's get down to the stadium and check it out. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're going to be here for two full hours this morning, as we do every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. Give us a shout one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. Guys, we've come twenty minutes into the show without talking about the end of football, the Super yeah. Bowl. It was. What? It was what to you, the Super
3: Bowl? It was a vindication. I don't know. It can't be that. I don't want to result it. Which is always You feel a, you
2: vindicated? Know. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you put it all on the line on the Super Bowl? I did it, but, I, but I mean, we sat
3: there and listened to uh, down in Miami, we heard the majority of our experts were touting San Francisco. And they were right for 55
4: minutes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right.
3: And then the counter-argument was the quarterback at the end of the day and the explosive offense matters
1: most. I'm just saying. So I I hear you (laughs) because I I ended up picking San Francisco as well. And you on the show down there, you said good offense beats what I've learned. Good offense beats good defense. And my, my reaction to that was... Base rates. That's a good solid base rate. Audi, you, you good you, base you rate. Called me out. Thank you. No, but that was right. But the trouble, this is the challenge with base <laughs> rates. Is like you always think when you pay a lot of attention, or when you're a real expert, you think you don't need you, you. You have additional information to bring to the base rate. Why settle for just using the base rate when I have all this other information? That's a trap. We can all get pulled into that. And is trap. the
2: base rate like when to. When good defense matches up against good offense in the Super Bowl, good offense wins usually? Is that is that?
3: Do no, we actually I'm, know I'm that not even talking match? about the Super Bowl. Bowl. I'm just talking not about the season, it's which just I think is the, the
4: majority of the games are.
3: Why The just, emergence, I, I, the emergence
1: well, this, in football of the preeminence of offense the more well the more okay that's, sure. that's that's what i heard audi say yeah,
4: yeah i also understand, i understand this is tiny 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 sample but i even brought to our show in miami that stat is now six and zero. when patrick mahomes goes up against top five defenses in the nfl he's only played three years or two years yeah. really he's six and zero. so he's never lost to a top five defense and again i think if you look at the game do, we agree, that much, turn- wait, do we agree though did we agree though that turnovers didn't really decide that game. Uh, wait, it know, could have, wait. It well, could I have, mean, no, if San only Francisco point, had
2: won, we would be having a no, different no, no, narrative about, about, about that. that.
4: No, but my only comment was, Kansas City put thirty-one points on the board. I'm just saying they didn't. There wasn't a pick-six. They didn't get a ball deep in their own t- in San Francisco territory because of a turnover. They put thirty-one points up on the board. Well, the last uh,
1: touchdown was, you know, end of game garbage time. So yeah, all they 24 needed was to a,
4: twenty. They were trying to stop a first down. Yeah, and I, I, okay, but all I'm commenting is they they scored a reasonable sure. number of points in well, the game. M- m- more and than that, more
1: than that, they had a, they had their own interception deep in the mm-hmm. niner in, end of the field.
4: Uh, no, exactly. So I'm just and saying fluke,
1: And at a fluky, well, a relatively fluky one at that. No,
4: I don't know. All I'm commenting on is no, no, they not, played I, the game as if they were going to score about thirty points, and I'm just saying that's not. Let's not put that with the eighty-five Bears. Like, wow, this is one of the great defenses of all times. Kansas City was going to score 30 points on that team and that's what I thought would happen in the game. Didn't Mahomes uh intercept weren't there two interceptions
3: and three fumbles?
1: Mm-hmm. Would if I told you that uh, the, no, no, at, they, at they the recovered all they there's one yeah. there's one bit Eric they fumbled the ball three times and got them all back. Yep. And we of the most the most chancy of all the chance stats in football is recovery fumble, fumble. conditional of ball being fumbled who gets it? What yeah. is the
3: base
4: rate on that? Is it 50-50? No, it's got to be
2: more for the team that I would fumbles imagine. the ball.
3: Is it... Well, they're they're by definition have one person not far
2: away. <laughs>
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm going 50-50. Yeah,
2: I think it's all it is almost. 50/50. I just think that the, the you don't drop the ball
1: it, by yourself, right? I mean, you I drop the ball in the presence of other people. I can <laughs>
2: certainly remember <laughs> two of the
4: fumbles. I certainly remember huh? Mahomes twice because one was he was driving. He no, sorry. Was one was so, a receiver. Sat, was, no, no, he was sorry. He was cutting towards the end zone. He was hit. The ball oh, yeah, was fumbled three, yeah. backwards. Yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. Out of bounds. It didn't have to go out of bounds. The other was he was stripped. That's and right. And he dove on the ball. There must have been three. But regardless, you're right. If you told me after the game that... He'd win the MVP after having that. No, that I'm not as concerned about. (laughs) Just that, you know, he'd have two picks and
2: he had personally had at least two fumbles... Yeah, and he, by by his standards, he did not have a, a particularly team. good game. But he was up against a top five defense. So, so I mean, I I think it kind of did go. Why did it
1: Why did it flip late in the game? So we're all trading text at the halfway point or the yeah. three quarters mark. And we're all like, oh man, Mahomes is not not on looking game. good. I'm... And then everything flips, and the D had held him. Then the D couldn't stop him. Well, and I think it's.
2: I, I think you can only hold that guy for a, a certain length of time. I mean, I, I have not seen him yet. Not break out in the game. Even that game last year in the AC Championship when New England beat him, he broke out for like 24 points in the fourth quarter. It's just New England had accumulated enough of a lead where they kind of could survive that, essentially.
1: One, one observation I heard was that the Chiefs, the Chiefs defensive coordinator changed his defensive tactics over time to better control what spagnola yep. did, and then and then the Niners guy didn't. So he, yeah. he stays. Sala stayed with his same strategy all the way through. Might it be the case... That when you're playing someone like Mahomes or Andy Reid, let's give them both credit. That you have to shift your strategy over time well, because they're going to solve. Here's it the advanced
4: yeah. analytics stat I did see about this. Um, so apparently, what the Chiefs did in the fourth quarter, which let and they this is how they've measured that it worked, was that instead of running five man patterns, you know they have this is their Legion of Zoom. They ran four man patterns. They kept an extra person in, and so when they both measured analytically the amount of time that Mahomes had to throw the ball in the fourth quarter and the, the distance from the defensive ends to him – both of those showed a dramatic change in the last nine minutes of the game. Really, so that by him keeping an extra man back, you're right. In some sense, he didn't create an extra mismatch because now I got five fast guys out there. But now Mahomes can actually get somebody the ball. That mm-hmm. I'd seen the analytics on the motion data that looked at that.
3: So it seemed to me that um, the turn, the key turnaround was that mammoth. Passed in the fourth quarter at third and fifteen. <laughs> at yeah. Third and fifteen. Yeah. He and he dropped back. He seemed to, at least to my eyes, drop back like fifteen yards. It was yards. a nine-step nine <laughs> drop. Nine-step. He drop. just. Ra- I'm running away from you, and I'm throwing
1: it. And to me, <laughs> the, and 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 about w- that's, re- that's classic Mahomes because there are no nine-step drops in the playbook. He's just no. like, he's like, Well, let me. Do what what those quarterbacks
2: saying. can't
3: just <laughs> he just run well, back right away. twenty yards
2: and then sling it
3: like and, then that. Have it, and throw it like and, and so and then it seemed that the, the receiver was a Tyreek Hill who caught it. Yeah, was wide open. Was that what? What am I seeing that I'm missing? Did well, they? The, they you, blow cover You, you want to
1: give? You want to give the individual player credit because he, he he got the guy turned and right when he got right. him turned he went the other way you want to give some criticism to the safety who turned the wrong direction but you want to give the scheme some credit because they call that route and they don't do that randomly um but what you don't want to do is give mahomes too much credit because the guy i mean you and i could have completed that ball that's not true but almost somebody like us could have completed that ball he just kind of it was a it was a it was a mickey rivers is that the old center fielder who threw For the yankees pop fly yeah. yes It was a pop fly if he hadn't been open as wide as he was. But I want to give the offense credit, and I want to give Tyreek Hill credit.
4: I think the other thing that I look at, you know, I look at that game as, I don't do live betting on football games, but we talked about this. I view this as a missed opportunity, and let me say why. When after, before that third and 15 play... I'm sure you guys now know this. Do you know what the reported win probability, which yeah, would then, by the way, would have been the betting odds? Yeah. You could have gotten 20 like, to 1. It was 95%. You could have yeah. gotten 20? I mean,
3: I know that the models
4: were it was saying 17 95. or 18 to right. 1. You could have gotten. I think most smart money people would say Kansas extreme. City would. Yeah. That's way too extreme. And, yeah. and the reason I was thinking about this in terms of calibration, I'm just wondering where that 95% comes from the sense of, is it looking at all teams and all games to which you are at not you know down this much with third and fifteen, or are you conditioning on okay? It's Patrick Mahomes. It's this offense. I'm just wondering what is the set of plays yeah. and teams and what, and to which you, they're and using. What this. you
1: most want you want them to consider the variance of the teams involved. Correct. You not only want specific teams, which I they they surely have. They're at the very least they're updating it. Well, we know they're updating it for what's happened in that game. They've probably got priors based on the teams that are involved, but you want them to have variants. You want team-specific yeah. variants. So exactly. I actually track this. And I bet this, they don't.
3: I, I track this afterwards. There's a lot of models out there. So 538 was around 95%. The standard uh, win probability see and ESPN was even higher, I think more like 96%. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it did vary a little bit. So N- Ben Baldwin's model, I forget it. He he, he had a, has a model that was... M- lower than 90 The lowest
4: I've seen is 94.6, and the highest I've seen is like 96.3. Right, so Ben Baldwin's
3: model was, was, was around 88%. And then Neil Payne did an analysis, which he mentioned on, uh, on the radio or on a hot takedown. He said that he just looked at teams that both had winning records, where there was a 10-point lead in the,
1: with eight minutes to go in good, the fourth quarter. Good, quick, realistic. And he got about uh, 90%. Yeah, so a little mm-hmm. bit lower, a little bit lower. Guys, before we go, I, I want to hear a little bit about the coaching side of thing. I feel, you know, badly again about my prediction because in Miami I said, hey, if it comes down to, if you knew nothing about the players, do you want Reed or Shanahan? If you knew nothing else, just the coach setup, and we were like, ah, oh, you know, at the time we we're like, ah, oh, Shanahan. I think, and coming out of this game, it's like, man, the guy yeah. got out. Yeah, coach. So, yeah. so
3: who who uh, punted on fourth and two or a field exactly. goal? That, who did
1: it and who didn't? Let me yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. Can you us? Multiple times Shanahan, multiple yeah. times, and Reed went for it twice, got both. It's only the second time that a, that a team has converted two fourth downs in a Super Bowl. The other time being here in Philadelphia right. to, to, in, in and 17. And you know
3: that they missed those four points when it would have been 24. Oh, no. oh, oh yeah. so it, was, it was that conservative. I, I, mean, I
1: had I had, our colleague Joe Simmons is is, is 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 texting me in the game real time. Like, it happens. He's like, this Shanahan might be an offensive genius, but he's making terrible fourth down calls yeah. because early in the game he's basically, he's not, we don't know that he's leaving points on, on the table, but he's at least leaving the possibility of points on the table by being so conservative. Just Especially
2: also at the end of the second, uh, the first half as well, he was very conservative.
1: Well, well, well the turns out out that the guys in the league who monitor fourth down performance p- fourth down judgment identified him as conservative a long time ago yeah. that even though we all think he's calling this brilliant scheme and he is he's got this other quality he's known as being con- early in the season and all season long he proved himself to be conservative
4: yeah i was just commenting that comeback obviously changes entirely the narrative of andy reed's career now in the sense of I'm not saying he's a better one or a worse game. coach no, well, it, well no, not even one game <laughs> six, six minutes because uh, if he's uh, if he's 0-2 in the Super Bowl which fumble. he was staring at 0-2 yeah. in the Super Bowl he's obviously you know he took the Eagles to five NFC championship games won one of them if he had if they had lost this game he's I don't think he goes
2: into the Hall of Fame as a coach it's oh, amazing. I think he probably but, still does, but I mean, it's easy mode now. And, it, yeah. but the,
1: the thing is not that it's wrong now. It's that it was wrong before. Right. Like you've got to have these one game that breaks your way to, to, to really kind of seal the narrative.
4: And now he's essentially, yeah. I have to say it, but he's a coin flip. He went 1-1 in the Super Bowl. And two and four, which I'm not saying that's fifty percent, but it's not statistically worse. He's two and four in championship games and won one, to one in the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's about right. It's just we yeah. we
1: we we give coaches and quarterbacks way too much credit or blame for one or two championship games in their career against a whole body of evidence that yeah. they built up. Well, to
4: that Kyle's point. Kyle's going to hope he has his father's career, loses the first couple of Super Bowls and then wins a couple at the end. Because Shanahan, now, as far as I'm concerned, he lost that Patriots Super Bowl for the Falcons too, and he's now lost this one. Well, that's yeah. what
1: was he was um, was he the Broncos coach for always too is that what happened yeah, Mike Shanahan yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he lost so the but, but and, and there's a,
2: also been but, like I think I saw that there's been a three ten point deficit comebacks now in the Super Bowl in the last like five years and Shanahan's been on the receiving end of two of them
1: correct. Yeah. well okay but but yeah okay, but he's still young he's got plenty of time to learn and we give him too much blame anyway but this, this thing where Shanahan is all of a sudden Hall of Fame for winning two at the end Elway Elway was so criticized his whole career won the last two Tom Osborne had one of the best careers in in the history of college football won, won a bunch at the end but until he won them at the end he was he was. oh gonna...
2: I mean remember what we're talking about Peyton Manning before he finally got over the top with Indianapolis as well he yeah. was a playoff choker it is a sport and it is about winning so you can't completely undervalued. I
1: don't want to completely undervalue, but people but we do we do
2: it. tend to overwrite narratives when winning does happen certainly. <laughs>
1: All right fellas, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have 3 quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
5: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
0: on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Money Bomb. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. The full crew in here today. Audie Weiner over there, Stats Prof. Shane Jensen right here to my right, Stats Prof. Eric Bradlow, Stats and Marketing Professor. This is Kate Massey, Professor of the Practice in Operations, Information, and Decisions. We are delighted in this segment of the show to welcome a new guest and a new kind of guest dr tara c smith she's a professor of epidemiology at kent state the college of public health over there she's been there for the last six and a half years she before that was at the university of iowa college of public health where she directed that college's center for emerging infectious diseases if that gives you any tip on where we're going in this half hour dr smith good morning to you and welcome to the show
0: Good morning. Thank you for the invitation.
1: We are delighted to have you. I want to give you and our listeners just a quick background on where this came from. We were in Miami for the Super Bowl last week, and we were having some late-night conversation and adult beverages with our show friend of the show, Eric Eager, professional football focus, Eric Eager, who in a previous life was a, worked in epidemiology, so statistician, mathematician. Had some biology and epidemiology, and he and we start kind of kicking around coronavirus stuff, and he starts throwing out modeling ideas and parameters at us, and we're like, we realize we have no idea how these things get modeled. We on this show we're forever interested because we're statisticians. We're interested in forecasting, and we're interested in models, and we're interested in doing things more rigorously, and we're interested in how these things get communicated to the public. And it turns out this is exactly your expertise, and so we're, this is a pretty big deviation for us to talk about the coronavirus and epidemiology because we're always talking about sports but we think it's important enough in the world and connected enough fundamentally to what we do that it would be worth having you on the on the show and we thought and we're glad that you're up for it
0: well thank you so much
1: so tell us a little bit first about your background and how you got into this um and and are we right that you're the you're the right person why are you the right person for us to talk to about these issues (laughs)
0: Well, um, so I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I mostly work in in a lab. Um, I study Staphylococcus aureus, which is another big issue in sports because a lot of teens have had staph infections. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I study how that moves between between people in the community, but also between people and animals, which mm-hmm. is what we saw. We, we think the coronavirus is a zoonotic pathogen, which means it probably originally came from an animal source, but then jumped into the human population and moves person to person. Mm-hmm. And so I will say I am not a modeler myself, um, just to, to get that out there, but mm-hmm. I do a lot of trying to use modeling, trying to explain modeling to people in what I think are kind of fun and interesting ways. Yep. So I've written some papers on zombies and, and using zombie outbreaks to teach people about infectious disease modeling.
1: Okay. Have um, there been any zombie outbreaks? Have <laughs> I missed them? <laughs> you missed those. Adi. Come on, man. Pay attention. That's,
0: that's the nice thing about zombie outbreaks is you can make it all up. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, so you can use those to teach the concepts to people about how disease is transmitted, how we can control it, how we understand transmission in population. So
1: that's exactly where we want to go. I mean, at the fundamental level, we, we watch these reports coming out of – they're coming out of China, but they're now you know being discussed everywhere, mm-hmm. and we wonder where it's going. And also there's this – there's this kind of naive faith in science that we can forecast these things and we just need someone to tell us okay is this thing going to be a thing or is it not going to be a thing is it going to stay over there is it going to is going to come everywhere and so fundamentally we're asking what's the forecast here and so maybe we should just go straight there and ask you to be concrete what is the forecast and then we're going to want to go underneath that and ask okay where does that come from what does it depend on what is actually known what's not known
0: Right. And so I'm going to start with the unknowns first because there's just so much we don't know yet. And so I can't, you know, predict the future perfectly, and no one else can right now either. And that's some of the data that we're trying to gather um, in order to understand where this could go, what the interventions that are in place right now are doing. are doing, excuse me, um, how successful we think they're going to be, what is happening in countries other than China looking at transmission there. Obviously, in the United States, has still been pretty well-controlled. In um, some other countries, we're seeing other generations of transmission there. So we're trying to put that all together and figure out some of the possible scenarios. And, you know, that ranges from it will burn itself out and that it will maintain control it will be kind of more like SARS that we can use strict quarantine and isolation procedures to stop transmission of this virus in the population increasingly that's looking less likely Um, but whether it's something that will you know maybe remain endemic in china versus become a pandemic and spread globally with lots of transmission events in countries throughout the world that's something we're still trying to figure out, and we really don't know yet.
1: Tara, what does that what does that depend on? What are the key factors that will determine whether it burns itself out or doesn't? Yeah, you it stays see, you've in-
2: you've already said that it's this is kind of SARS outcome is looking less likely. What's mm-hmm. what's that based on?
0: Right. So this seems to be, um, so it's spreading quicker than SARS. So SARS, we were able to take people that were sick and isolate them, quarantine others who are exposed to them and basically stop transmission of the outbreak. With this, we're seeing such a rapid spread of individuals who are ill. You know, we've had 25,000 cases or so just in about the last, you know, month or 5 weeks. SARS we had 8,000 total. So, it seems to be spreading a lot more quickly. Um, we also really don't have a handle on how many people um, in Wuhan and other infected cities in China, how many are there that aren't being seen by physicians, by hospitals. We think it's probably a considerable amount that the hospitals are only probably seeing the sickest people, and we're missing a lot of cases out there that are maybe a little bit more mild, which is a good thing, but they're still spreading it to other individuals. So we really don't have a handle on a lot of that yet so um so those are the things that you know kind of keep us up at night <laughs> and then we're trying to figure out in order to to determine What's going to happen with this?
4: So, Dr. Smith, this is Eric Bradlow. My wife and I were actually talking about this last night, and she brought up a bunch of data, and she asked me, Eric, explain this to me as a statistician. I just looked at the data literally last night. Apparently, 80,000 to 100,000 people worldwide roughly die of the flu every year. The number of people that have died for the coronavirus so far has been somewhere in the I think, of 500. Mm-hmm. Is the reason why people are so concerned about this because... Let's. It's. There's a two-pronged question. Is it because the rate of spreading is much faster, and then conditional on you getting it, the outcome is potentially much worse? Is that why people are overly concerned about this compared to the regular influenza, which kills m- appears to kill many, many more people?
0: Right. I, th- I think those both play into it. Um, so there was one one tweet that went viral early on, um, looking at what is called the R-naught. So that's what we we use to m- measure basically transmissibility. The r um, usually abbreviated like R with a subscript zero, is a measure of transmissibility in the population. And early reports suggested this could be up to four, which is about the level of SARS. Later reports put it down to about 2.5. That's
3: number so, of people, right?
0: R- right, exactly. So on yeah. average, if, if one person is infected, if the R-naught is 2.5, they'll infect on average about 2.5 others. So something like measles is about 12 to 18. So this isn't terrible as far as being infectious, but, or being transmissible. But it still is still spreading, which is scary.
3: And the death rate is also quite a bit higher. I mean, usually the influenza death rate is in be less well, that was, than one percent. That, yeah, that was my, I think, que- that was I my think question. It's around three percent S- right
4: but now. Just, this, I just want to make sure I have the right dimensions. So you're, t- so I, I didn't use your words because it's not my field, but I did have the right two dimensions, which is transmissibility rate, and then let's call it severity, case, conditional case, on fi- getting case it.
1: fatality
0: rate. Exactly, and the case fatality rate is another big unknown too. So you cited three percent, which is, is I think pretty standard. What's, what's being um what's being said right now but the problem with that is that that is based again on cases identified so far which tend to be the most severe because those are the ones who are reporting to the hospitals you see that i mean this is very typical in the beginning of a new epidemic that the case fatality rate looks bad because you're seeing the sickest people so lots more deaths um and the percentage of the or the the cases that you're seeing the denominator are only those sickest individuals.
3: Right The numerator has not grown in the last week as fast as the denominator has. Right. I can exactly. point out.:
0: Exactly. And, and that denominator will probably grow faster once we're able to start looking for more of those mild cases. Um, right now, again, we're seeing mostly very sick individuals. We don't really know the extent of people who, who are infected, but you know, maybe hardly have any symptoms or only have like a mild cold. Um, So those we just don't know about. So as that denominator grows, as we're able to start searching for more of those mild cases and not just putting all of our efforts into, you know, kind of stopgap measures for the very sickest cases, then we're going to see probably that case fatality rate drop even further from the 3% that is reported right now. I mean, the other unknown, of course, is that with pneumonia, you know, you can be hospitalized for weeks or months before it either resolves or, you know, you pass away from this. So we're always behind um, behind the, the beats with deaths as well. We have, you know, again, thousands that have been infected right now and 492 deaths in the last report with 911 recovered. But obviously, that's missing a lot of people. Those, um, you know, those numbers together are definitely not all of the cases that we have, and we're always behind on that.
1: Right. We're talking to Dr. Tara C. Smith. She is a professor of epidemiology at Kent State, the College of Public Health there. She is a specialist on infectious diseases and communicating the uh, the information about those diseases to the public. So, Dr. Smith,
4: literally. Um you could not have be on our show on a better day, and let me say why, for my own selfish reasons. I teach a PhD empirical models course, and uh-huh. at 5 to 7 tonight, I happen to be talking about the topic, which is my home field of marketing, diffusion models. How do products get adopted and diffused through the population, and we borrow from infectious disease models. The most standard model we use is a model called the BAS model, which is the number of people that get a disease is just a function of the cumulative number of adopters that have already got the disease. Of course, that ignores any heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. It ignores the fact that some people are more likely to transmit the disease to others. So do people in your field, number one, do you think about, let's call it network structure, population density, that some people getting the disease are more likely to give it to others? Like, we shouldn't just assume an equal transmission rate. How... How much when people are doing modeling in your area do they take into account these types of heterogeneous factors?
0: Oh, they do. I mean, um, for... for so, so, so our basic model is called an SIR model, so susceptible, infected, and then removed or resistant, so you're either, you either die or you become immune, and you're not able to get reinfected. So that is really basic, and that assumes in that model also homogeneity in the population, which, of course, we, we know doesn't happen. It also assumes no births, no deaths, no immigration, anything like that. So that assumes, again, everyone in the population is the same. Um, we know that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, um, so I was just showing my students actually the other day, we talked about this in my infectious disease epi class this past Monday, and I showed them the basic SIR model and then I showed them a model that was done on SARS from the 2002-2003 the outbreak, mm-hmm. which has variables that include all of those things. It includes, um, the SIR model also assumes that you go immediately from, um, from being susceptible to being, you know, in- infected and also able to transmit. So there's no incubation period, no mm-hmm. period where you're, you know, growing the virus in your body, but you can't transmit it to others yet. The models take that into account as well. So they take into account population density, number of contacts with individuals over time, and how that can vary. So. Again, not what I do, but um, but I can definitely show those models and explain them um, that are definitely used that have those more complex variables to try to better approximate reality.
1: So, Doctor Smith, as you talk about this, I'm am I'm am I'm I'm in a cousin field from Eric in decision science. We we would we would just model this with a whole bunch of uncertainties, basically, and you have a, you build up a model from we don't know you've you've named all these parameters, and we don't really know what it is in this case. We don't know whether the case fatality rate is 3% or 1% or 4%, so we would throw a distribution there. And then, I'm sure this is what the epidemiologists do, but, you know, by the time you've built out a pretty complete model, you've got lots of uncertainties in there, but then Mm -hmm. you'd run some kind of simulation to talk about what are the range of possibilities. Now, maybe you need to know the correlations of these things to really do it well, but I'm sure that people are doing those kinds of models, and I'm curious, and it's going to give you a wide range of possibilities. Is it so wide that it's kind of meaningless at this point? Or are those kinds of models helpful in some sense?
0: I mean, I think they're helpful as far as preparing. So, you know, in public health, we usually want to know a worst-case scenario. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which right. It doesn't yeah. come to that. But what if? You know, what is the the worst thing that can happen here? Um, so those models are really instructive in, in trying to figure that out. And then trying to look at interventions. So if you can decrease transmission, you know, just – you know, going from 2.5 to 2 or something like that for the R naught, you know, how will that affect the the spread in a large city or the total number of cases over the first year or something like that so that that you can, you know, plan hospital staffing so that you can plan buying supplies, um, stockpiling, things like that. So uh, there definitely is a lot of uncertainty. and, And this early It's really hard to get accurate models. We saw that with Ebola, you know, where they were predicted like anywhere from 10,000 cases up to like a million cases. You know, it's
3: interesting how you talk about it because obviously the medical community is most interested in in the upper range of that uncertainty. And they probably Mm -hmm. model around it as opposed to the full distribution. But I think it's interesting – that the financial markets—they're they, the ones who care about the full distribution because mm-hmm. they essentially want to figure out what is the what is the possibility and the probability of a major disruption of the economy. And I, I thought there was a, a huge tank of the market um, in response to the coronavirus, and then it just exploded back. And I'm I'm wondering whether that means that I think that the that the the I don't know whether this is done mathematically. Or of course, there are uh, financial sharps who really try to work this out. That I think that there's a a significant probability that it it won't amount to much as well as a probability that it is a disaster. So I think we're looking at the full range. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And there was an article um, in, I think it was Stat the other day, that looked at some of that range and, and assumes that, okay, so even if we do have a pandemic, so even if you do have something that goes global, that affects pretty much you know, every country, um, at least in the United States, what is going to happen after so, is this a, a virus that is going to become endemic? You know, something that we just deal with every year, kind of mm. like the flu. Is it something that would burn out and go away after kind of the first, you know, sweep through the population? So, those are the type of things that people are trying to at least conceptualize, think about what potential outcomes there are, and and what we would. Do about them, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Dr. Smith? You mentioned interventions, and I would think this would be a hard thing to model and a, an important thing to model. And for, and we're curious just about the effectiveness of these interventions. When how good do you think we are as a society, or do you think any of the countries are as a society at interrupting the spread of these things?
0: Yeah, um, it, it depends on the number of cases. So obviously, in in in, in Wuhan right now, I don't know how much this is interrupting anything um, with a lot of people already exposed in the United States. You know, we've done okay so far. The only transmissions we've had here from cases that have have caught it elsewhere have been amongst husband and wife pairs. So people who are in very close contact um, who probably were exposed you know, before people even realized they were sick. So they couldn't isolate themselves yet.
1: Is that by chance or is that something that we've done to accomplish?
0: Um, we've done that. So, again, we've, we've quarantined individuals. The last um, like airlift that we had out of Wuhan, those, are, those individuals are quarantined for up to 14 days, which is the um, kind of the extent of the incubation mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. we think. Um, individuals who have come back and who have been sick are immediately put in isolation. But again, sometimes if they've been already living with a spouse or something like that, um, you know, you're in close contact. They weren't isolated before. They may be quarantined in their home. They may not be able to go out into the public, but it's really hard to separate them from, you know, from individuals in that home. So, um, so I think we're doing a good job of it here so far. But again, we've also had a very limited number of cases. So we'll see how that continues to play out.
4: So, Dr. Smith, maybe just a quick 30-second question. If if we could want to stop the spread of the disease, where are we going to get the highest ROI? Is it by isolating people? Is it by well, if you spread it, maybe we'll minimize the chance that you get it, or will it be reducing the complications if you get it? Where's you know, I'm, As a business school, where's the greatest ROI going to be?
0: Oh, Good question. I mean, preventing it in the first place. So, Vaccines?
3: Uh, yeah, is that vaccine, possible?
0: Vaccine is, is the gold standard. We don't have that yet. We don't have that yet. It will be I would say at least a year if if even that, mm-hmm. um, so vaccines are the biggest one. But beyond that, I think isolating those who are sick because we know you can spread it when you're sick. The big question is if you can spread it before symptoms, and we just don't have concrete data on that yet. Got if, it. If you can spread it before, that's going to complicate a whole lot of uh, procedures.
1: Right. Final question, just in the last minute here on 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 net as an expert in the field, do you think we as a society have been overly concerned, under concerned, or appropriately concerned about this thing?
0: Uh, I think a little bit overly concerned again, we just don 't know, but I think from again a public health planning standpoint our our politicians have been under concerned about this. We have been you know beating the drum on all kinds of all hazards pandemic planning for ever since i 've been in this field, you know for twenty years and more um so I think for that, we are under concerned under prepared and it 's something we That's always talk about and never get any press until something
1: like this comes up. Well, listen, thank you for taking the time to be with us. We wish you the best with your work, obviously, and that you get more traction with the public health, the public policy people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Tara C. Smith, professor of epidemiologists and expert in infectious diseases at Kent State University. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break.
5: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
0: on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Money Bomb. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Replayed throughout the week also up as a podcast available on demand. You guys can also get in here. You want to be on that podcast? You want to be on the replay? Give us a shout. We would welcome it. one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866 or hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We still take emails. It may feel kind of 90s to you, but we'll take them. We'll respond to them. We'll respond to them on air. Maddie D, waiting for them. Radio at SiriusXM.com. Also, Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle. We follow the world of sports analytics. We follow all of our guests. Good way to stay on top of things at W Moneyball up there. In this half hour New guest in studio. So delighted! It's always fun to have guests in the studio, and it reminds me. I was thinking about this this morning, guys. You know, you know, when you when you when you when you lose a pet, you're supposed to mourn for a while. You're not supposed to run straight out there and buy another pet. You're supposed to sit with the grief for a while. When you leave a relationship, you don't want to bounce back the next week. You got sp- to spend time, be healthy, spend time. Is,
2: is, is football the the grief here?
1: We left football yeah. on Sunday. We left football. We're facing we seven we months of darkness. Yeah. But instead, we want to get a new football relationship. Yeah, and happily these days somebody's available mr xfl and to help us understand what that's all about eric moses is here eric is president of the dc defenders one of the eight xfl teams there the whole league is being launched this sunday the first sunday after the super bowl eric we're delighted to have you
5: thank you call me uh, football cupid i guess (laughs) that's right
1: well we need it and that's kind of the advertising scheme going on with you guys as well it's like hey you don't have to live without football you can watch some more football and, you know, the, the, I think that we want to understand everything that's going on with the XFL, but the obvious question to ask is this time last year we were talking about the AAF, and and it did really well the first weekend, and it was like, oh, maybe spring football is going to work. And then things didn't go so well for these guys. XFL, you guys made a run at this thing. I, mean, I say you guys. the McMahon made a run at this thing under the same title almost 20 years ago. What is going on differently this time? Why is it going to work out this time?
5: So same name. Um Different approach this time, Uh, a lot of focus on the football, right? We have taken what I think is almost like a product development um, approach to developing this game. Uh, As we like to say, people that watch our games, whether in person or on television, will see football first and the XFL second. So no gimmicks. We're going to be true to the game. It's authentic football, 100-yard field, matriculating the ball down the field four downs at a time, Mm -hmm. what we're used to, what we all grew up on. But with some innovations around the the edges to make the game faster, Mm -hmm. uh, up-tempo. Uh, and as our commissioner Oliver Luck likes to say, less stall and more ball. Right?
1: <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Is we that got...
3: different from the last time? I mean, so
5: yeah. So the last time, I think you know, and I wasn't directly involved back then, but but watched um, a lot of the focus was on the show, uh, and and maybe not so much on the football. And this is really about a focus on football and giving people fast-paced football that they love that's family-friendly and accessible. You know, I mean, I I started off as a football fan as a kid because uh, it was a game I I played and and grew to love. And and what we find these days is that we want more families to be able to come out to games and make that association early on, especially for young people. And uh, with the affordability of our tickets uh, and the kinds of organizations we're running and the kind of game presentation we're going to have, we think it's going to provide people who already love football an opportunity to get more of it you know and during those three months where that we're going to deliver 43 games all nationally televised and for folks who haven't maybe uh, gotten a bug yet give them a, a great opportunity to do so
1: well look you you guys are even the 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 people that you've populated the league with are football guys i mean oliver luck was just a few years ago the hottest athletic director in college and then he goes to work for the ncaa of course he played uh, some professional football and the father of one of the highest touted draft picks in, in the history of the league your coaches as you look through the eight teams bob stoops you know after a great run at oklahoma's now coach in the dallas team houston has june jones you know he was a, a revolutionary offensive coach jim zorn one of the greatest quarterbacks in in, in well he was the franchise. He was the. He was Lefty the,
4: Magic. He yeah. was the
1: Seattle Seahawks expansion team quarterback for the first little while. You've got Kevin Gilbride in there. You've got Mark Tressman in there. I mean, these are legitimate these football are the coaches. Guys. Yeah. These are coaches. But who are the players?
5: Where do so, they come from? So I'm going to be remiss if I don't throw my coach in there, Pep Hamilton, who oh, yeah, uh, most recently was uh, assistant head coach at Michigan uh, with Jim Harbaugh. Yep. Was Oliver was uh, Andrew Luck's quarterbacks coach at Stanford and okay. at the Colts. Oh, really? Uh, has okay. a very very extensive background, offensive okay. genius, and uh, and we think that'll show on the field, uh, especially given our starting quarterback Cardell Jones, who won the first uh, uh, Look at college that. football. Cardale playoffs. Jones is the yeah. starting quarterback. Yeah, it's it's nice. He, is he didn't
1: indeed. have to change his. He didn't yeah. have to change
5: his house. No, no, he BC. loves the colors too. He loves it. <laughs> Yeah, Cardell loves the colors, so uh, uh, our red and white works just well for him. And then our backup quarterback is Tyree Jackson, who uh, distinguished himself at the University of Buffalo a few years ago. Okay, and we like to say our quarterbacks are much taller than yours. We've got one six five and one six seven, two big guys uh, who who have uh, great arms and uh, and frankly have shown great leadership qualities already.
1: So beyond the the highest profile names in the league, where else are the players coming from? And and if you're a player, how do you think about spending time in the XFL? Is it, are these guys who are still making a run at the NFL? or these guys who want some more development? What how, How's it work?
5: So, you know, all of us are doing this from uh, management and all the way down to the players and, and frankly, fans, uh, you know, as we like to say, for the love of football. And that's really what it's about. And this is going to be a platform to allow many, many young men to continue to pursue their dreams. Uh, we had a draft back in October. drafted about 409 players. I think about two hundred plus of those had uh, been on NFL rosters in twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. These guys are you know four and five star recruits out of high school. They've gone to power five conferences and played football at its highest levels. I like to say f- football and sports in general are one of the you know the ultimate meritocracy. Right, you lose a half step, lose your job. Mm-hmm. You know, drop one minute. One too many passes, lose your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always somebody coming up behind you, and so many of these guys, I think, have suffered from from that, and are trying to, you know, continue to play a game that they love, make money doing so, and and to get to to the highest level. And for many of them, we will be the highest level, and for others, you know, they may get another shot at uh, at the NFL.
1: So we're gonna we're gonna unpack as many details as we can. So let me just get into your business. You just meant you just said uh, make a little money doing so. What kind of compensation are we looking at for the players?
5: So the average um, salary, I, th- I think we've announced. This summer is about $55,000. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're working for three months. So our, our season starts uh, this Saturday, February 8th. And, and, and we training camp just started again. a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, right? we had a mini camp in Dece- the month of December, essentially. Then, and, then, okay. tra- and we had a collective training camp, all eight teams down in Houston, oh, each at our own individual practice facility. Um, but what that also allowed us to do was to do some dress rehearsals. Yeah. Right To cool. really make certain that between our broadcasters, our offici- uh-huh. officials, uh, our teams, our game day operations staff, that everybody got a chance to see what our game and what our product is going to look like on the field. And we did that four times. We had four different games, just like we will oh, wow. uh, this weekend
1: full length games. Yeah. So, and you got a lot of different. You got a lot of different. We're going to get into the rules in a minute. You got a lot of different changes in the actual details. And, is this,
2: and this is upcoming weekend, the first weekend of the regular season, or is there like an exhibition schedule kind of as as, as you guys gear we're, up?
1: We're twelve
5: 12 week sprint. All so, right. uh, I love it. No one likes preseason. No, no. I mean, honestly, this this, if this, this, is, if
2: this is one of the innovations where it's kind of like truncated preseason versus focus on the regular season that's something i think the nfl could certainly look to borrow
1: this this thing you guys did in houston suggests an important feature of the league which is that it's it's one owner Mm -hmm. and so you've got eight franchises but you've got one ownership which allows that kind of coordination
4: so Rick, let me ask you um we always talk in statistical (coughs) models that what really matters is the difference between two teams like if team a plays team b even if they're both a little bit worse what matters is how much better is A than B. If I'm a fan and I'm watching this, like, I couldn't tell, just looking at the TV, I don't think, whether someone runs a 4 6 or 4-4. They both seem really fast to me. When fans are watching this, are they going to say, wow, those are really not NFL players? Or will they say, you know what, these are, you know, top five-star recruits. These are both very good players. It doesn't matter that they're not NFL. They're a lot better than me, and they're, they're basically at the equal level. How do you think about that?
5: So look, when when I'm around the players, they look like uh, professional football players to me. Uh, they move like professional football That's what players. That's um, You know, I like the statistic that, that we have that says uh, there are about 28,000 college football players every year and less than 300 get drafted or signed as free agents. Mm-hmm. There are more than 300 guys who can play high-level quality professional football every year, and mm-hmm. we're going to give many of them an opportunity to do so.
1: One of the great things about this, and it's not necessarily about the XFL, it's in general having another league, is that... Situations matter, and players get into teams, they get behind guys, they get matched with the wrong coach, and even if they have the potential to be an NFL player, they're in the wrong situation. And you're creating an entirely new situation for people to rise, and some will rise. There's, if you guys play for a, a full season, some of those guys are going to get signed into the NFL in the summer.
5: Is there a, an age minimum? Do, will you take uh, athletes right out of high school? That's a great question. Um, we do not have the same rule that the NFL has where you have to be three years removed from high school. Uh, and when, in fact, we have a player now um, who is on the St. Louis Battle Hawks who had two years of eligibility at West Virginia and decided to forego that third year of eligibility – um, and is playing with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is projected to be a, a high draft pick um, in the NFL draft. And the way that our season works, we're February, March, and April. Our championship game is April 26th on ESPN. That sounds um, very
4: familiar to when the draft is. Do you What's think, the date of the draft?
3: Uh, yeah.
5: I think the draft is I, that same week. That's what I'm saying. I think yeah. it's
4: April 20th It's that week.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the 24th. It, April 24th is yeah. the beginning. It
3: seems to me it's a, that might be an interesting long-term strategy. There's there's always, every year, there's a. have there, been looking at the high school recruit list, there's a a bunch of really highly touted players who just for whatever reasons, whether it's whether it's confrontations with, with law enforcement, with school with, of, of some kinds of uh, personal problems, they just can't handle the, the college and then they're kind of out of the system. This would be a, a great opportunity to give you know young people who just don't have it quite right at age seventeen or eighteen, and who really yeah. does, mm-hmm. to not just get out of the system. They could really, and potentially, you could be using this as as a as a as a, a major feeding ground. Play for four or five years, and then maybe prove your stuff and and get,
5: yeah, I get think Drafted just, by the NFL. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just as importantly, I think that there are young men who come from families where. Mm-hmm. Making money while you can and have those unique talents to be able to do so is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're going to provide an opportunity for some of those young men to be able to do that maybe earlier than they would otherwise get to do so mm-hmm. to support their mm-hmm. families, et cetera.
4: So do you, you talked about this, Eric, a little bit. Who's your target market? Is it people like us who are diehard NFL fans who want to, you know, in some sense, enjoy football for another three months? Or is it, as you said, um, it's families that couldn't afford to go to games? Or is it people that don't really watch football that much, and you're going to bring them under the tent? And who, like, if you define the target segment of people that you want to go to and watch XFL games, who are they? All of the above. All of the above. It's really
5: all of the above. Um, we know that there are over 200 million uh, football fans uh, out there, 38 million of which are, we call avid fans, people who routinely watch or attend football games. Um, they have seven months where there's no football. You go from 117 games in December down to one in February. We're going to give you 43 games between February and April. Of additional football, so yes, for you guys who are f- avid football fans, you get more football at a high level. For those who are curious and maybe casual fans, here's an opportunity at a at a very affordable price with a pretty exper- interesting um, game day experience to come out and experience it. Um, and uh, and and I think even for people who just want something really fun to do in the springtime, together with their friends or family or others, we're going to give them that opportunity I, as well. I,
1: I give you one more market if you're the fan of a team who doesn't have adult ownership you might have an alternative here. Our, our our man Eric Moses here, he's helping run the Washington franchise. I mean, give me a place that needs a real franchise more than Washington, D.C. I mean, if you're sitting there... Wait, they yeah. yeah. have, you have you a professional team? <laughs> yeah. I, they do, apparently, but... And, yeah. you know, we, it, we, maybe, we'll, like, maybe we'll bring some new uh, management and new owners through this organization, through this new league as well. And
2: I'm a little curious. I mean, it really sounds like you're mostly targeting, as far as the, the players that you're going to have uh, playing in, in, in this first season, you're targeting players that were either, like, not selected in the NFL draft or somehow t- ca- just kind of missed by the NFL system. You could imagine a future where this is actually, you know, you have current NFL players that, say, for example, you know, this would be like, you know, kind of the, like the spring league, the the... The, the fall leagues in baseball and stuff like that where, yeah, South American where, Mexican where there's players that are maybe could use a little bit extra development or a little bit extra playing time in the offseason can you envision a time when like NFL current NFL teams kind of like essentially lease out their players for, for your season? So
5: I'll, t- I'll say two things about that. So um, our quarterback, uh, Cardell Jones said in an interview recently he hadn't been a full time starter and been the man on a team since his senior h- year of high school Right, So imagine that guy wins a national championship for Ohio State University, was third on the death chart. Two guys had to be injured before he got on the field and then led them to a national championship. But he has not had the opportunity to really show what he, what he has day in and day out, week in and week out since high school. We're going to give a player like that a real opportunity to show what he has for all 32 teams potentially. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys that are ended up in our league have been on practice squads. When you're on a practice squad, you're auditioning for one team and one set of coaches we're going to give certain guys and this is not necessarily our 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 aim but we're going to give certain guys 10 weeks of film right on national television every week yep. to show what they can do um that's pretty powerful and our season ends as you guys have pointed out right near the draft and so ideally or you know someone could play a whole season with us and then end up in uh, training camp
4: mm-hmm. so for an Ar-
5: NFL team. So, Ar- let me put on my marketing professor hat for a second. From a
4: business point of view, what does success look like this year in the XFL? Is it number of tickets sold? Is it ratings on television? Or is it, look, they'll come if the quality of product on the field is good. How are you thinking about what success looks like?
5: It's a great question. I mean, frankly for us, we understand that fandom is earned, right? No one's going to give it to us just because we suit up and go out on the field. And so with that in mind, we are focused on putting the best product on the field, making certain that our organizations in all eight markets connect with the communities that they serve, uh, making certain that our players and, and our coaches are out there, um, uh, and, and putting on good good football for people. So I, I we want them to watch in person we want them to watch on Fox, ABC, ESPN, and Fox Sports 1. We want them to buy merch, like all of the things that that you would think we want to do. But we understand that we're in this for the long haul. Uh, we're, we're planning for the long haul, and we're willing to put in the work to earn the fandom.
1: We're talking to Eric Moses. Eric is the president of the D.C. Defenders. They're one of the eight XFL teams, XFL being the new football league that is starting this weekend. And as Eric says, it's about the football. They're playing the game that we're familiar with, and it's intended to give a product in the spring to a bunch of folks who are otherwise missing it. Let's run down the eight teams real quickly, just so people know. You guys are taking a different strategy than the AAF. Last year, AAF's like, they wanted, they wanted to avoid NFL markets, basically. You guys are like, no, we want to go to the biggest markets, and that means we're going to go into places with football teams. So Dallas, by the way, pick a favorite um, mascot name here. The, the, one of them really jumped out to me when they go. Dallas Renegades, Houston Roughnecks, Los Angeles Wildcats, Seattle Dragons, D.C. Defenders, New York Guardians, St. Louis Battle Hawks, and Tampa Bay Vipers. Great set of cities. I'm going Battle Hawks, man. There's not even any competition there. Battle Hawks. What? A, what a... I
2: feel like I got to go DC Defenders just to. I mean, thank it's, it's <laughs> well, right. I mean, it's the law. Lo- it's 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 the local team. It's not. It's the local non. You New York team. I mean, I'm obviously going to just be biased against the New York yeah, team. You can't from go New York. Go.
1: Can't go New York. Okay, so DC. Yeah. We got Eric here, of course, and also they're the closest team for us. <laughs> Eric, are you going to be a Vipers guy? You got the Tampa Bay family there.
4: Actually, here. we're uh, so I've got family in Tampa. I go to a, a number of Buccaneers games. Um, we're actually organizing have scheduled to go to an XFL game right. we're definitely
1: going this oh, season I think Tampa excellent. Bay
4: starts with two games on the road though I was told so I think we're waiting but yes we're definitely going to a game this year for All sure right.
1: so one of the most interesting things to NFL fans is variations on the rules that you guys have come up with and you know I, you're not a subsidiary of the NFL but you know you guys have a collaborative relationship you've got some support and you surely they're keeping an eye on what happens for multiple reasons one of which is they always need to tweak the game right they need to tweak the game and so you guys are playing with lots of tweaks we'll run through some of them and then i'm curious was any i mean is this just all stuff you came up on your own or did y'all or did y'all talk or some nfl guys what if y'all did this or we've been really curious about that so for example um you're doing these things on on kicks where they you can't you can't run up you have to the, the one you move the the kicking team down, and they're right next to the receiving team on the other side of the field, and then the ball kicks off, and you can't even run until it gets caught. And so it turns it into a little bit more like a play from scrimmage, just as an example. One of the ones that Eric is super excited about, after the point after touchdown.
4: Oh, this is my favorite.
1: Now you've got three choices, none of which involve kicking. It's a one-point play from the two-yard line, a two-point play from the three-yard line, or a three-point play from the ten-yard line—that's great fun. Then you've got these overtimes. What do they do at overtime? Hockey, Shane? How do they play overtime? If you play an overtime period, and it, and then you and it's still tied, what do you? Oh, and actually, this is well. Massive. I
2: mean, in the playoffs, you just keep playing, and, and in the regular season, there's
1: a shootout. The shootouts, and then in yeah. ho- of soccer, of course, they have the shootouts. So they've basically come up with a shootout style approach to overtime, which is brilliant. Each team gets five single play possessions from the five yard. And by the way, are you alternating? Or do you do five in a row?
5: Yeah, I get one, you get one. Oh, man, that's fun.
4: But I love this. Tell me how the idea came about for, you know, one point for the two-yard line. Maybe it's two points from the five-yard line. And then three points from the ten-yard line. I think it's a great idea. Is it expected value neutral?
5: Yeah. How, yeah so
4: how did you guys think about this?
5: <laughs> so we have a, a fantastic director of football operations named Sam Schwartzstein. I want to give him a shout out. He was, in fact, um, Andrew Luck's center at Stanford and, uh, and, and a great guy. <clears throat> um, so I knew you guys would like this one, the point after <laughs> touchdown, because it allows teams to stay in the game longer. Mm-hmm. So you're down 18 points in the fourth quarter. There's two possessions, right? I, I score six and I go for three. And if right. I can make it both times, yeah, right. it keeps you in. And so we want games to be exciting all the way until the end. Um, we tried to get rid of the most boring plays in the sport. And the Extra point, point af- is
3: definitely one of them. That's yeah. one of, and a
5: yep. the kickoff now, and, and for good reason in some cases is the most boring. We line up 22 guys, we kick the ball, it goes through the end zone, we blow the whistle, and then we change out those 22 guys. Go back to commercial, yeah. Yeah, what we're doing now is making certain that there's an opportunity for a run back. One of the Mm -hmm. most exciting plays in football is the run back. Who doesn't want to see a guy take it to the house or get tracked down trying to take it Mm -hmm. to the house? Mm -hmm. And what it also does, it makes the game incrementally safer. So to your point, we're lined up on the 30 and the 35, five yards apart rather than 10 yards apart. Guys are not turning themselves into human missiles running 40 right. yards down the field as fast as they can, throwing themselves into each other as you would currently see. What they're doing is trying to figure out how do I get around the blockers in order to engage once the ball is caught. Right. And we think that provides for more strategy and it provides for a safer game.
1: Now, now, Adi, you are a reg- resident traditionalist here. You know, if this were baseball, you would be, you wouldn't be able to sit down right now listening to these rules changes. I mean, how can you not enthusiastically when you don't approve – of baseball doing away with the, with uh, with pitchers batting,
3: one's baseball, one's football. <laughs> what can I tell you? I mean, I'm not necessarily a traditionalist. It's, it's just you're about just, baseball. just about on baseball.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love it, but I, I said that because because Eric says we're trying to do away with the least interesting, most meaningless plays, yeah, yeah, which seems a, like the right strategy. But I'm not
3: against making changes outside of say professional baseball because yeah. there's a, there's a in baseball as speaking as a statistician, there's a continuity of records that allows you to compare the 1920 Yankees to the 2020 Yankees. I mean, is exactly fair? No, but it, it's approximate and it, it kind of works. And and uh, but when if you're talking about the minor leagues, which has made instituted changes or college, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that experimenting in this way is is yeah, entertaining. And I, and, I mean, and,
2: and, and I think football. I think the culture is just a, one of, of 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 accepting a little bit more kind of evolution right. of the sport over time. And this, I mean, these kind of innovations would be kind of great. I mean, and it, and it is you know, I mean, I guess I guess the only counter argument towards your kind of scheme for the kickoff would be that it's sort of like it's probably going to evolve the kickoff to be something that is more about scheming than it is necessarily raw athleticism which is not necessarily a bad thing but like is 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 a change that i think would be more acceptable in like a football culture than it would be in a baseball culture
5: yeah and and i think that is an interesting point for our coaches um who who are tested when it comes to the scheming but it shouldn't be lost on us that we want to make the game safer, and that's what the NFL, yeah. the NFL, and other um, those rules around kickoff have seen, seen to, to do. And that's what we're trying to do as well.
4: Sir, so, you can tell we're real football guys because we've had you here for 20 minutes, and we haven't even asked you about the role of analytics. So let me ask you about that. We're also an analytics show. Does whether it's the DC Defenders or any of the teams or the league, what role is analytics playing in the XFL? Does your franchise have someone that's saying, you know? third and ten has a higher number of expected points and going for it from the two-yard line. You know, how, how are you guys thinking about the role of analytics in your league?
5: Yeah, um, so over the last 18 months in, in getting our game prepared for, for presentation, we've done a lot of that kind of measuring um, and trial and error around the rule innovations in order to make certain that it works on the field, it works for our coaches, for our players, for our broadcast partners. Um, We can't underestimate the importance of making certain that the people who are talking about the game can do so in a way that fans can follow, et cetera, especially with innovations. Um, I think as we collect more and more data, um, from playing these games, you'll see a lot of that happening. And because we have rule innovations that gives you different statistics to actually capture. Uh, I know that when we had our summer showcases in the, in, in the summertime where they were essentially combined slash tryouts for players, we were measuring different things with um, uh, sensors, sensors and, stuff? and stuff on on guys to, to measure their velocity off the edge and how much force they were using to, to hit pads, etc. So I think that we are going to be a 21st century uh, sports league and we will look for every opportunity to measure things and to analyze those things as we go along. Are you and looking
4: it, for an academic partner that might... you Like, <laughs> if you guys collect data, are you looking... You know, I'm saying, Adi runs a group of... There's a group of undergraduates, of which Zach Drapkin, our s- assistant producer, is one of them, and my son's one of them. They would love to get their, literally, their hands on data that talk about velocity and force and where people are on the field. So if you're looking for an academic
2: we partner... We actually
3: have a group of students willing and And, yeah, and, and to I mean, jump in.
2: Beyond, beyond even that, I would sort of... At, at these early stages I think it's worth advocating for kind of you know, maybe Openers. trying to build a culture of greater data availability to yeah. the public. I mean you guys are probably going to be leaning a lot on the NFL's already kind of development of a lot of data collection innovation, like, you know, I I assume the ball is gonna there's gonna be a chip in the ball and the chip in the shoulder pad, same as the NFL. But you maybe have a little bit more of an opportunity to kind of like share that than, you know, the NFL teams where they are the ones making this kind right. of like Innovation, uh, investment in the technology, and so therefore they're less likely to share the data. I would We, also, we have a
1: contract would, written up right yeah, here. We have yeah. a, <laughs> but
2: we'll just sign it. But, but I will but, say something that
3: Major League Baseball has done well with their with the data is they've used the data to make the fan experience um, much more compelling. I mean, you, you go to a baseball game now and you have detailed information about about of course the velocity of the pitch that was that's new and they can do much more now when you watch the game you see the whole strike zone and the, the curvature of the ball they'll be reporting every single aspect of the movement I'd love to see some of that stuff for football I've been hankering for it for years you know how fast would that pass you know you know exactly mm-hmm. you talked about you know Mahome's uh, a toss-up you know softball it didn't look like that to me I'd like to have the data to show that you know what 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 that information is you could be a leader in some of those those that public um, uh, availability of, of information
5: there's been a lot of discussion about that and 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 also seriousness, I do want to connect you guys with our uh, Senior Director of Intelligence, a guy named Steve Viglione, um, who captures a lot of data for us. We have it on the business side, but also on the football side. And so, um, you know, as you may have seen about some of our other innovations, we will have communications devices in the helmets of five players on the offensive side. So Mm. we may not even need huddles Mm. because they can get the play directly in. Again, another thing, along with our 25-second play clock, another thing to move the game along. We Mm -hmm. want our games done in two hours and 45 minutes. Ideally, Fantastic. with the same number of plays <laughs> that you would normally see, about 160 to 170 plays per okay. game. For
3: reference, NFL game is how long?
5: Uh, three ten? hours, ten minutes. Yeah, three ten. Three hours, ten minutes, um, and so we want to get into two hours and forty-five minutes, uh, and so that the game just goes, and we're cutting the fat, if you will, giving people more, you know, more plays, more action. Um, and uh, and yeah, so yes, we'll 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 connect all the dots. I r- think besides
4: just the on-field stuff, I love Audie the way you went with this. Which is, could you imagine sitting in at an XFL game in a stadium, and all of a sudden a pass is thrown, and you saw how fast was the runner going, what was the trajectory of the ball, how open was the receiver? I think, just Eric, I just love your thoughts. I think there's a wide open opportunity to be an in-game experience using analytics innovation. I just think there's a wide Huge, open and opportunity. it would differentiate you from the NFL. Well, it's certainly
5: the direction we're going, and I mean, I, I am equally impressed by the stuff that you see on those AWS commercials during during NFL games, where it right. talks about the probability of a catch. and Russell Wilson had, you know, three percent opportunity to make this pass, and right. that stuff is really really interesting. And I think for our television viewers but also because we're trying to bring people in the game closer to the game and give fans more access that those kinds of innovations in the future are things that i'm sure that the league is looking
1: at Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. last little bit before we have to let you go you've got the opening game so this saturday seattle's coming out to your dc defenders tell us how that opening day is going to go
5: it's going to be really exciting. I mean, uh we are uh, in in uh the District of Champions, which is what we call ourselves these <laughs> yeah, days after the Caps, the Mystics and the Nationals right. uh winning championships. Uh we're we're honored to be able to to, to launch this league mm-hmm. uh, on on the 8th, bringing Jim Zorn back to DC where he was right. once a, a head coach at at, at the Redskins. Uh it, it's going to be great Audi Field. We believe is the best uh venue in the league. Um, Why is that? 20,000 seats. There is no kind of upper deck. There's not a bad seat in the house. It's very intimate. Because it's a soccer stadium, specifically, you will, fans will be closer to the action and to the field than they have ever been in any football-specific stadium. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it's built. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's downtown D.C. Uh, easy to it's get fun. to it, and going to be it's beautiful. It's interesting
4: that you do that because I have to admit, when I saw where they're playing in te- – I mean, obviously, my stadium, if you like Raymond James, yeah. I'm like, Really? Like, I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm just saying I would much rather go to a game in a 20,000-seat stadium than whatever 65,000— well, the Buccaneers aren't drawing that many either, but either way, I'm really interested to see how the experience is in a Mm -hmm. 20,000-seat stadium. Yeah, Mm
5: -hmm. L.A. and D.C. are both in soccer stadiums. Um, The rest are are former or current NFL stadiums, CenturyLink, Raymond James, MetLife, um, the Dome in St. Louis. Uh, Houston is at the University of Houston, about 40,000. Uh, and Dallas is in Globe Life Park that was most recently Texas Rangers Stadium, but right. now is being converted for football, and the Rangers have built a, a, a new stadium next door. Oh, interesting. So an interesting mix of stadiums and venues, but all eight of these cities are so excited about us bringing this brand of football uh, to them that we think we're, we're going to put a good number of people in all the stadiums.
1: Well, listen, we wish you the best with it. Exciting development. We'll keep an eye on it, and we hope to talk with you more down the road but it's been great fun hearing about what you guys are doing
5: thank you so much for having me
1: that's eric moses eric is president of the dc defenders an xfl team one of the eight xfl teams that begin play this weekend thank you eric that has been three quarters of wharton moneyball we still have a quarter to go come back and join us after the break
4: you're
5: listening to wharton moneyball
0: on business radio
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Money Bomb. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Got the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. That was Dion Simpkins, sound engineer and associate producer. Dion's always bringing us up out of the bottom of the last hour. He, he mixes it up, A little different vibe every week. It's fun to see where Dion is, whatever mood he's in. Going to share with the us and the listeners. But glad to have Dion in on the group. By the way, Dion, you got to make one of these Super Bowl trips, man. We're going to have to make that happen. Three years now, no Dion. That's the only Talk missing element. Talk to the okay. Yeah.
4: <laughs> By the way, oh, next we'll, we'll year, it oh, it's in Tampa Bay. It's in Tampa
1: Bay, right? Yeah. Eric's going to be down there for like two weeks. That's true. The Whole week before, <laughs> whole week after. That is true. You have to do the whole thing.
4: You when you have ninety six year old aunts and uncles, you're going to spend two mm. weeks down there yeah. too.
1: That's good. All right, we'll start working on the bosses to get Simpkins in on that on that on that show next time. Uh, real quick note on the XFL. We just spent the last half hour. That's fun talking yeah. about stuff. So that those games, these first two weeks are going to be on ABC. So it's not going to be hard to find those games. They're playing both Saturdays and Sundays. I suspect they're going to do real well. though. Opening, the question is going to be how they persist.
3: is the XFL Bell League emergence coincide with arena football's collapse?
1: I think, I don't Or know. is it completely independent? It's a good question. Um, it's a good, I'm not, I, my immediate answer is no, because I didn't pay any attention to arena, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. The only thing
4: I would say is, uh, let's listen to Derek Moses' talk, is that they're different games. I mean, the arena football league is just different football. Yeah. When I'm hearing the positioning of the XFL, it's I mean there's some rule changes here and there to make it faster and more exciting. But it's football. Yeah. Yes right. And so football. that's very different positioning than the Arena League. And so or the CFL or, 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 or
2: the other, XFL in its or first the previous iteration in, where XFL. they really did try and be more of a kind of spe- you know show than a, just a game.
1: The thing the single thing I'm most excited about is that it's a it's a it's a platform for players who may not have found their right place yet. Mm-hmm. And they I mean people we need more and longer looks at employees in all kinds of industries. People get in bad situations and they get misvalued. This is if this lasts, this is going to be a way to get valuations done more correctly.
4: I just hope it succeeds from a business point of view which is, is that they're able to figure out how to monetize it and that you know and also that players can you know as you are pointing out Kate is that it's a career opportunity for this young career for a larger number of players. If that can be that that would be fantastic.
1: So Probably the biggest sport going on in the last week that we haven't talked about, but I know that Bradlaugh has to spend some time looking at, and I even paid a little bit of attention to it this time, was the first Grand Slam event in the tennis year.
3: Kicking off the
1: tennis season.
3: Well, not February. Yeah, it's sort of kicking <laughs> it off. Does. It's sort of kicking off the season. Three months later is the French Open, I think. So, about.
1: <laughs> Djokovic taken to five sets. He is yeah. the king of the Australian Open, and he was he was down in this thing.
4: Yeah. So when I uh, I watched the I watched I didn't watch all the match. When I woke up at four four thirty in the morning, he was down two sets to one. So a couple interesting things about Dominic Thiem, who he played in the finals. First, um, apparently, uh, Djokovic's record went down two one in major finals was 0-7. So this is the first time he's ever come back from down two sets to one in a major final. That's sort of interesting. Second, I was looking at Themes' record. So people... He's not really somebody that's talked about. But of all the next-gen, not-big-three players, he's been to three major Mm -hmm. finals. yeah. More than anybody by far.
2: He's and, the name I hear uh, almost as much as Ver- Wawrinka, I guess, is the other one, right? Yeah, but
4: Wawrinka's 33. Yeah. Wawrinka's the yeah. old guy. I'm saying, you hear you probably heard of some names, Alexander Zverev, yeah. Tsitsipas, right. et cetera. But Theme has actually been to three major finals. Unfortunately, two of them were at the French against the King of Clay, and now the other one is this one. Um, but here's his career record, by the way, against the big three, just to let you know. He's 5-2 and two in his career against Federer. That's not too bad. Yeah. He's including hard courts. He's five and nine against Nadal. Anybody would give that record against Nadal, and he's actually four and seven against Djokovic. So, if you want to talk about a player yeah, who's mm. right there, yeah, he's right, how, how old is he? He's twenty six. So in his prime, he's in his and prime. he's doing decently against guys ten years older. Yeah, yeah, no. It's well, not, they're not ten years older. So some. <laughs> no, 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 I understand <laughs> your point. <laughs> it's not. Sure. Yeah, some work I'm just saying. It's just smart. like well, where are the superstars? No. nor is Nadal. No. Yeah. Djokovic is 32. Right. Nadal's 33. I agree. They're at the end of their prime. He's at the beginning of his prime. But by the way, it's the same age gap between Federer and Djokovic and Nadal, and that's why people, you know, in some sense, we all want to look at the major numbers. Federer's now got 20. Nadal 19, and Djokovic 17. In the short, in the five-year period, though, this is why I still, to me, yeah, and the goal. is going to end up on top. He is, but during the period where they were both in their prime, Fe- if you eliminate Clay, because you have to eliminate Clay, or, or Nadal dominates everybody on all other surfaces. Federer had a two-to-one winning record against Djokovic and against Nadal. Yeah, when they were both, if you want to call it, both count- in their prime, when they're yeah. both in their prime, Djokovic has been stocking up wins against Federer. Over the last five years, when it's I see. Federer's been older, I see. again, similar to Nadal, yep. also against Federer. And so, but yeah, that's what happened. I mean, Djokovic, yeah, so, he's on his way. He's going to end up with the most there, majors. There
1: ought to be some metric, some objective metric we could build that, 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 that weights these Grand Slams by strength of competition. Pretty objective way to do this in some way, like yeah. oh, Elo does that. Yeah, well, yeah. I was yeah. going to
2: say, wouldn't like a, a just a but player a, a, specific a, a, Elo kind of build that in naturally?
1: But I want, but we're talking about Grand Slam. so we're try, we're going to we're going to Eric's wants to Eric you just wants want to, to make call better. the rest of it. Yeah, just yeah. yeah but I do don't it. know about just do Elo on. Is that really going to be the best way to do it? Maybe so. But like, I, I don't know. Wins over expected or something yeah. simple mm-hmm. like that. Grand Slam wins over expected. That yeah. would be
4: a very nice way to do it.
1: I because, mean, Elo but, is,
3: is more or less that. but ten, It's just ten, on a different that's scale. Getting, that's yeah. right.
1: That's getting close. So t- tennis just has this quality where people playing in different eras just face very different levels of competition, and mm-hmm. it's hard to normalize in that situation.
4: Yeah. And let uh, me just comment, by the way. Especially,
1: there, well, real quickly, I'm sorry, but there's, the, you know, one of the reasons for doing it like this, Adi, might be w- rendering down relatively sophisticated analyses into easily communicated, accessible, yep. familiar terms. Yeah. And so if you can kind of – we're talking about Grand Slam, and instead of Grand Slams, it's like, you know, expected Grand Slams or something real close same to Same units. It. Yeah, so keep it in the same units. I mean,
2: I sort of think about this like, you know, can we put an analytics perspective on – in the end, when we're looking back 20 years from now, at who the most dominant player we've ever seen is. And let's assume that it's somebody within this three-person set – is Federer going to get kind of extra credit for the years that he kind of stood alone before Djokovic and Nadal kind of clustered with them well, who and, is and, chief and correspondingly back then? Nadal and Djokovic are they going to be kind of downweighted a little bit because they never sort of, you know, they essentially never existed separately or something right, like that. You know, right. there was there was no time in which they stood alone. I th- am talking right. psychologically, but you know, we're go- people are going to want analytics to inform that particular yeah, debate. So really, the two really players. So when Federer first came up, who yeah, were his, so the, two, the, two, the
3: two? Sampras?
4: Uh, no, no, Sampras would right have then. been just out. Right when there, it would have been Andy Roddick. Yeah. Was the top U.S. player and like the top five in the world at the same time, and then just at the end of Andre Agassi's career, yeah. right? Those would have been the players, right? But at I the, mean, when-
2: I, I remember Federer and, and Tiger. We talked about them in kind of the same conversation as these athletes that were just completely dominating yes. yeah. their respective sports. And you know, and I think they're about the same age or so. I no, guess no, no, Tiger's no, no. little T- yeah. forty-four. Oh, okay, Tiger's so, forty-four.
4: But I just wanted to also point out golf people. has a longer, a longer. Long there the was, by the way, I just want to say again, we've talked about this on the air many times. There was a women's tournament played too, and yeah. by the way, um, a U.S. person won. Sophia Kennan. She had was ranked fourteenth in the world. She went through, they called her, she was in the quarter of death, which was she was in the quarter <laughs> with, well, besides Coco Goff, who played well, yeah. the number one player in the world, Ash Barty, she had to beat. In the finals, she had to beat Gabriela Muguruza, who was a multiple-time major winner and champion. And so we go back to... While the big three is dominating on the men's side, on the women's side, we keep getting all these different major winners. Isn't
1: this something like the 13th different winner in the last 14 that majors? That is correct. Something close to that? Yes. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Wow. And also, it makes you learn how to pronounce more names which is Wow, that too. But again... If your, your ability to pronounce tennis players' names is right yeah. near the top well, I'm going to
2: have to borrow you for hockey, where every, you, you know, mo- um, like half the names now are Russian. All I'm... Well, <laughs> now, well, all I'm commenting on is
4: if you go back to... This is the same discussion we have when we talk about golf. Like, you pick a major and you say there's 20, 25 guys that can win. Like, how far do you have to go down to get to 50% probability? You'd probably have to go for women. You'd have to go to at least... Ten? Eight
3: Maybe. to ten, yeah. players. unbelievable for yeah. tennis because tennis is quintessentially the top-heavy game,
1: right? But not right, right. right. in the women's, not women's. So let me let me. I made I saw one other interesting comparison that they came up. I'm curious to get your explanation. I think I understand it, but it took me a minute to get there. So Djokovic, this was his 78th tour-level title, which took him just past McEnroe. He's been tied with McEnroe for 77, but this was Djokovic's 17th Grand Slam. How many did McEnroe win? Seven. Seven. So yeah. why is there such a disparity between number of tour titles oh. and Grand Slams? So there, I think there's that's a really simple one. one but it took, me, it took me a minute to try to – because you want to say – They played you – know, well, no, 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 all right, no, no. I know the answer. So <laughs> that the, the intuitive answer is, oh, well, the, McEnroe must have underperformed at, in key moments. And that's not what's going on, Adi. What do you think is going on?
3: They played all the time. Right. And one, if you look at his careers – and this is the most interesting thing about tennis – is they, in order to support themselves, they had to win and play in in enormous numbers of tournaments. Right. They can actually, the, particularly the greats, they can dial back and play just the fraction of what they used to. And this is why they have long careers. Mm-hmm. McEnroe, when did he stop playing? 26, 25? No, 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 mean, no, no, no but-
4: not McEnroe. McEnroe played until his early 30s. He won his last Grand okay. Slam at like an age... Look, this is the interesting fact. Bjorn Borg won his last Grand Slam. He has 11 at age 26. John right. McEnroe wow. won seven. He won his last one at age 26. So while they... Borg stopped... McEnroe right. played for another five years. But was Connors
1: won. played he won, late, right? Connors 30. played
4: till thirty nine. Yeah, and he made the semifinals. When was that,
1: when was that U.S. Open? That old man. I'm going to say 1991. And how old would he have been? Then? It was 39. He was thirty nine. He was thirty nine in that one.
4: Correct. And he lost. Who he lost to? He lost to Jim Courier, who was the number oh. one player in the world in that U.S. Open. Who ended up going on to win the U.S. Open in okay. that. Yeah. So okay. I know. Matter of fact, I know it was in the early 90s, 91 or 92, because I remember where I was living at the Jeez. time. But again. Connors, I think, won his last Grand Slam maybe at age 29. Yeah, By the fact, that's another stat. Which was very Djokovic. late. I remember Djokovic. when yeah. he won it, now, and it was very late. Djokovic now ties, I forget who it was, uh, one of the older time players. Djokovic has won five majors now since the age of 30. Federer and Nadal each have four. And so that's another thing. I mean, remember, McEnroe, zero. Borg, zero Connors zero different yeah. time Djokovic I mean, now had, five yeah. we're talking about maybe another five this, to seven for yeah, Djokovic
3: remarkable, I mean this is a, a, a time of agelessness I'm not sure it affects all of us but, the, the, but no and you, academics too <laughs> yeah right but if you Sports, look at just, academics I mean Tom Brady is I mean and just you know, look, look at the halftime show yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah my my a lot God. of talk <laughs> a lot of talk about
1: the 50 year olds on, on the, the 43 and 50 year olds on the halftime show guys we're going to do you know what happens in the off season around here is we move from our money line matchups to over-unders so we're going to get there we're going to shift gears and start doing over-unders again as we as we roll into the long cold offseason but before we do that before we leave football betting at all i want to i want to get each of you to take a make a pick if you have to if you put money down on next year's super bowl winner at the odds posted right now who are you going to take everybody needs to pick one team you got them listed there let me just run down chiefs at the top of the list at plus 600 Adi can give us real-time translations into probabilities. Chiefs at plus 600. Ravens at plus 800. Joined by the Pats and the Niners, also plus 800. About twice farther down the field, Saints at plus 1,500. Then Cowboys at plus 2,000. Steelers also at 2,000. Seahawks also at 2,000. Think they'll be running the ball as much next year. Packers, 2,500. Eagles and Chargers, 2,500. Who do you want? You got a team for next year's Super Bowl. It's a little early, but let's place our bets.
4: Well, you, let me just focus on the last part you said, which is placing your bets. This is not the team I think is going to win necessarily, Correct. but it's I'm gonna, I'm, right. I'm gonna base, bet against the odds. I think the Eagles. I'm not just saying it because I'm because they're not actually my number one team. I think they underperformed this year. I think the Eagles did not. They were not far away from beating Seattle, who was a very good team this year. I think at twenty five to one. I'm putting my money on the Eagles, especially because I think the strength in the NFL continues to be in the AFC. I would be very tough to pick somebody against Kansas City or Baltimore, and if Tom Brady goes back to New England, there's three top teams there. I think the Eagles at 25-1 is a pretty good bet. That would be mine. That's my pick.
1: I love that that pick. I think that's fantastic. Um, It's hard. I'm going to take it because you did, but I I like the way you went to the bottom of the board and said, hey, these guys, they underperformed this year. They've still got a great quarterback. Um, They had a ton of injuries. I like that pick a lot.
3: Interesting, because the the way these odds typically shake out is they're overestimates of the probability because they factor in the the Vegas, the VIG. Vig. And uh, so 25 to 1, you you think that's a good bet. The actual forecast of probability is even a bit smaller. I think it probably is a good bet to bet on the Eagles. Interestingly, looking at the the
1: 800-800-800... Give the implied um, probability on twenty-five to one.
3: Uh, so basically, just take one over twenty-six. So yep. it's about you know three just, under half, four, just four, about three yeah, and a half four yep, percent. Yep. So all you have to do is add a hundred to the to the odds and then go flip it over. So one in eight hundred is one in nine. So the Ravens, Patriots, and the Niners jointly together are about thirty-three percent of the probability. I'm taking the field on those easy. I mean, I think these are overestimates. Um, but you don't the field, get the
1: field here. You need I don't get the team.
3: field. Mm-hmm. I get a single team. I'm going with the Ravens.
1: Hey, oh, I should have gone because that's who I want to be. You can take you it too. Take it my you two favorites two. on the board.
3: I think, I think that they had an early collapse. I think they're better than that, and I think you're f- reflecting that in the odds. And
1: you're saying the implied probability here is around 11%, which That's feels right. low for such feels a good Feels
2: low team. for a good team.
1: Now, the the question for the Ravens is whether the league is going to spend time offseason ske- sch- scheming and adapting, and they're not going to have quite the success next year.
2: And I think the other question for the Ravens is can Lamar, even if they are sort of successful in their same kind of offensive scheme uh, this upcoming year, and I think they will be successful, can Lamar Jackson survive yet another year in it, injury free, yeah, which is a big uncertainty thing that you have to kind of build into oh, Baltimore's particular strategy? Yep. Um, for we're me, all, we're
1: all on the edge of our seats wondering yeah, whether you're well,
2: going mean, to take, I'm, I'm take Patriots, the Eric. Patriots. I'm going to kind of take the I think the Patriots are, if anything, a little bit overpriced in this particular one. Um, I mean, I, I don't see them as kind of trending in the same direction as, as Kansas City and Baltimore. I mean, of course, Tom Brady comes back. They can put another run together I think they'll be there among the contenders but I unfortunately can't really kind of do they're not the underdog story I'm looking for with these betting odds the underdog story I think I'm going to focus on is New Orleans Saints mm. that would have been the other team at plus 1500 I do you think, think Bree,
1: they, Breeze at 50 years old is going to be able to get it done
2: Yeah, I think he is. I think they're they're still going to have an amazing array of targets for him. And I think their defense is, and I mean, they were kind of, you know, one bad luck thing away from being there again this year. Uh so that they're, they're I'm looking at them and I'm also looking at unfortunately I'm less excited about this but the Pittsburgh Steelers.
1: Oh gosh, really? I
2: know, well, I mean they almost made the playoffs with no quarterback this year this and they're true. getting their quarterback next year He's and an they old, have
1: old man
2: And they yes, but scarily rested. they have focused <laughs> for rested. the last couple years on building a really good defense in pittsburgh as well all right so you know Uh, how old is breeze and
3: roethlisberger
1: what is the ages older than roethlisberger oh
2: much yeah
4: so
3: uh is
2: 41 yeah is
4: 41 i think roethlisberger 37 yeah i'm gonna say roethlisberger
1: was in the same draft class with eli manning and philip rivers manning just retired and river's just been let go
4: so rivers is 38 or 39 so roethlisberger must be 37 38 okay yeah Yeah. okay
1: all right good fun good fun we can just muse on that for the next few until Oh, well he. Uh, no, 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 no! I, don't I, get away like, with it. Let's
4: like,
3: hear your I thoughts. Gotta, but
1: I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to do something unique because I think y'all took the best picks on the board. I'm going Ravens. I'm. I'm. A, I'm am ai am a, I'm a I'm loyalist here, but also I, I do think that this is underpriced given the quality of team. They just totally underperformed in the playoffs, and you know they. I, I I don't think the league's gonna solve them in a year. Moreover, they're not standing still. So we'll see. We'll see. Um. All right. Let's flip to our first episode of 2020 Moneyball Matchups. It's Warden Moneyballs Over-Under. <laughs> I mean, I'm rusty on this one. Over-Under oh, is not Moneyball <laughs> Matchups. We're done with Moneyball Matchups for a while. Eric Bradlow, can you lead us through the list here?
4: Well, I'll pick uh, – we have a bunch of categories. Let's start with the first one. Uh, sorry, it's perfect that Adi's here. Uh, we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. Shane and I talked about this. Let's start with the Los Angeles Dodgers over under ninety nine and a half. Now I think we're all confident some team is going to win hundred games this year, but will it be the Los Angeles Dodgers? So let me start with Audie Weiner. Over under ninety nine and a half. You know, last year you
3: asked me two ninety five point fives on the Yankees and the Red Sox, and I went no on both of them, knowing full well that, that I'm rooting against my own team. I it's won no one, lost the other. It's no, um, no
4: way am I taking a hundred. I'm absolutely under on a single on a single. By the team. way, you know what the Yankees are at? Shane and I talked about this two weeks ago. The Yankees are at over under a hundred and two and a half. <laughs> I'm just telling you
3: that's. Yeah, the number. I know yeah. you are. Yeah, and so I, you're going I mean, under. I'm Shame. rooting for both teams to do it. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I, so.
2: I you know, as as much as I do think the Dodgers will be a very dominant team this year, I can you you can't pick any particular team to be over 100 games. It's a rare feat. I'm going under.
1: We're talking Dodgers here. Yep. Yeah, they won 106 last year. Yep. They you told me they just traded for the second Mookie best pos- and David possession Price. player. In baseball, the, and y'all have been talking about price for a long time. I I'm going to go. I'm I'm going to do the non-statistical thing, which is unwise. But y'all just did the statistical thing. So I'm going yeah. to do the other way. I'll take the over on the dot.
4: I'm taking the over, but also I don't think it's that non-statistical. There will be a mean reversion. I would predict less than 106, but I don't know how much less. And they've added talent, and I haven't heard about them losing anybody. Okay. So I'm taking the over in that as well.
3: Well, pitching staffs age. They, they do. Said, well, David, David Price is old. Kershaw is older. I'm so you know. No, I,
2: I like this that we're split on this. So <laughs> yeah. This is gonna. Right. Uh, this, let's right,
3: continue right, on. Let's move out.
4: on to the NFL. We have a team that won the Super Bowl this year, the Kansas City Chiefs. Let's pick that one. So we'll start with you, Shane. This Over is... under eleven and a half wins in the regular
2: season. I'm going to take the under on that. Even though they've looked very impressive, there is going to be a lot of regression, and the you know the schedule will be stacked against them.
1: Do we know that? In what way will those guys? Well, work? I mean, they're,
2: they're, they're, those guys—you know—they're going to have those couple games. Of, oh, it's they won no, the not much
4: top of the not division, top of the
1: division a little yep. bit. Yeah. Oh heck, yeah. this is tough. I'm staying with the Chiefs. I'll go over on this one.
4: Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. Oh, I
3: get to say. Oh, I, you know, I've done some NFL forecasting, and eleven point five doesn't seem too too misaligned in any way. It's not like you're predicting twelve and a half. That no, no. What, did, what, they they what did they win? That's make these over unders hard. Yeah. What, yeah. what did they win they this year? They went twelve and four this year. Yeah.
1: Mahomes was out for like seven games. That's correct. Or
3: something. Yeah. I'm going to go over also. Yeah. Okay. I see twelve wins in the R13. But the
1: overs are the sucker. It's the sucker way to go. Let's it's do... like it's like in, in golf, leaving the ball below the cup is the amateur. Exactly. Taking the overs, the amateur side exactly. of the turtles.
4: Let's continue on just quickly. Uh, NBA championships. Does a Los Angeles team win it? So, Lakers... You can have the Lakers or Clippers or the field. So, Kate, I'll start with you. You can have both the Lakers and Clippers. I hate L.A.
1: teams. I can't go with that. Just out of pure emotion, I'm going against them. I'm sorry. That's not statistical. Fire me. But, no. I'm going against them.
4: I am going to go the under also. That's because I'm really... Imp- I really think this is the Bucks year. I yes. think the Bucks go are Bucks. a phenomenal team. And, by the way, if you look at their plus-minus, they're at, like, plus 12.5. half point spread in a game, that basically matches them with the great Warriors teams that have been really, dominating the last really. four or five That's years, who are between plus 11 and plus 13. I mm-hmm. think this Bucks team is real. I elect them, so no, I'm taking the under also. Adi? Well, Vegas has it, wants me to do the over. I mean, <laughs> if you just take one over
3: 325 uh, plus one over four... That's over. If I'm doing over. the math here. It's well over 50. percent Obviously, that includes the vig. You got to knock it down. So maybe it really is a good calibrated. All right, I'm going to go under. I mean, over. I'm going to I'm going to think one of these two teams are going to no. do it. I'm going go,
2: to I... go under just because you know. I mean, basically, you're you're it, it, even if it was a 50 50 in the finals, I don't have a 50 percent chance, and they may not even make it to the finals.
1: Yeah, um, really. right.
2: So, I'm going to take the under.
1: You guys got good deliberate, deliberate, deliberated, rational. A bunch of
2: big brains in this room.
1: All right. All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it live here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Thank you for listening. From the whole crew here, Eric, Adi, Shane, and Cade, thank you. Many thanks to our producer, Maddie D., for Zach Trapkin, our assistant producer, and our associate producer and sound engineer today, Dion Simpkins. I'm sorry. You can't get your bonbons because you're out here front working. We'll get you some one of these days. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week. Between now and then. Enjoy your sports.